Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode starts off with a ton of recent feats of strength, followed by a Q&A segment in which we discuss topics such as fat-free mass index and our genetic limits for muscle growth, pre-workout nutrition, how to build strength without adding muscle, and whether or not you should use touch-and-go reps while deadlifting. That's followed by a research roundup segment, which discusses some fascinating new articles about the relationship between muscle fluid volume and force, the effects of protein intake on bone health, and high load versus low load training. After that, we've got an explosive update on the drama related to some recent controversial research on red meat and processed meat, and then Greg shares some tips for baking the perfect sourdough bread. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to season two of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for joining me. Now, we have a lot of feats of strength this week. Uh, last last episode, you know, everybody took off the holidays. They decided just to not be strong for a while. But there is a huge list of really impressive feats of strength. But before we get into that, Greg has an announcement. Yeah, so for the last, I don't know, year or so, give or take, um, I've been sending out a list of all of the studies that I find during the, the monthly journal sweep of mass uh, or for mass. So, you know, essentially I'm going through give or take 130, 140 journals every month to find good stuff for mass uh, and figure, you know, if I'm already going through that effort, um, may as well not make other people do the same thing and, and waste their time. Uh, so I've been sending out the studies that I pull out to folks. Um, and so <laughs> I've been kind of like promoting that more, not really promoting, but like letting people know that that is a thing I do uh, a little bit more aggressively. And uh, so I found out this month, actually, that there is a limit on the number of free emails you can send per day on Gmail. Uh, because the number of people on on the list that I send those studies out to uh, has now exceeded that number. And so that left me in a bit of a pickle because um, I told people like, hey, if you just want to sign up and get an email of studies every month, I don't want you to have to also get marketing emails in the process to get those. Um, and so if we imported those folks to our just normal email list, there is a chance that at some point when sending out a marketing email, I would forget to like deselect that tag or cohort um, and then unintentionally lie to those folks. So that doesn't seem like a good solution. I could just start another like MailChimp account or something um, that I use solely for sending out the study emails. That also is not a great solution because due to the number of people I'd be sending them to, it would cost like close to a hundred bucks a month, which I don't particularly feel like paying just to do people a favor. So what I've come up with is I'm just publishing them on a page on the website. And if anything, that's probably actually a slightly better solution because um, now I can host like the whole archive of studies that I've pulled out over the last like three years. So anyway, if that's something that interests you, if you want to stay up to date on the research um, and just... I'll warn you, like when you pull this up, there's no way you're going to be able to get through everything on a monthly basis. I don't, no one does. It's like, it's like 250, 300 studies a month. Um, but you can go through the list and see, you know, what looks cool and interesting to you, uh, and just save you some time of having to, 
to track down all of those studies yourself. Anyway, so if you want to check that out, uh, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash studies hyphen archive. Uh, so strongerbyscience.com slash studies archive, but a hyphen between studies and archive. Uh I think most people listening to this are aware of some of the other just free resources we have on the site. So if you're a podcast fan, there's a database of all of the questions that we've answered on on the podcast. Um, there's also a semi-complete and comprehensive list of all of the um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses that would be uh, relevant to strength and physique athletes and coaches. I say semi-comprehensive because I've gotten a little bit behind on keeping up with that, um, but it's it's probably got 90% of them. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's a lot of good free resources uh, on the site in general, and this is just another one. So if you want to go straight to the source and check out a lot of the primary literature, um, I'm doing a lot of the work for you, like going through and finding the, the studies every month that you know, would probably be the most useful and relevant to lifters. Uh, so you can just go to strongerbyscience.com slash studies hyphen archive and check that out. Yeah, I mean, it, it's impossible to overstate exactly how helpful that is. Like, like this is a really cool resource that people can use. Um, it could save you so much time and allow you to really stay on top of what's coming out every single month from these journals. But like Greg said, if your idea is like, oh, I'll just work my way through all of them, you know, systematically, that's going to be rough. I, I mean, realis- There's a lot. realistically, you probably could, but it would border on a full time job. Yeah. Because yeah. like this month, I think there's like 250. So that would break down to like 8.3 a day. So if you're a typical person and, t- and it takes you about an hour to work through a study and check some of the references and whatnot, that would literally be working an eight hour job every day for the month. So, like, don't pull it up and get intimidated and be like, oh, to stay on top of the research, kind of, I need to read all of these. No one's going to. Like, you know, pick maybe like five or ten that look cool to you. Try to work through them. Uh, that'll help you stay on top of the research better than, you know, most things. Uh, trawling Instagram for information. Uh YouTube, like whatever, like it, it'll be a good source of information for you. Yeah, I have to admit, you know, when you go through and do the monthly sweep every single month, there's probably five to ten studies that I flag and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to go back and read that one very thoroughly. And they just go completely unread until I actually need them like six months later. <laughs> but but it, it's still nice to at least kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the oh, journal. Yeah, for sure. Um and I think everyone can forgive you for the systematic reviews and meta-analysis thing not being totally up to date because I think exercise science and nutrition recently realized you were allowed to do meta-analyses and that shark has officially been jumped. There's like 70 metas that come out every month. It's it's crazy. Dude, it's wild. Like If you go through and look at the years of the ones that are currently on the list, I think if memory serves, it's up to date through last January. Like I think I'm approximately a year behind. But a, a solid half of them, I'm pretty sure were published in 2018. Uh and maybe like four of them were published before 2014. Yeah, I I took a class at, at UNC on meta-analyses with Charlie Poole who's like he's been doing meta since before anyone really gave a damn about him. Um so he's like 
pretty a pretty big deal in the Cochrane collaboration and all that stuff. And he showed us a chart of the number of published meta-analyses per year in just like any particular field. It is just absolutely insane, the spike that's happened the last few years. But um, anyway, okay, so we have a huge list of feats of strength. We, we probably ought to get into those. Um, and it looks like starting out is our boy Julius back at it again. Yeah, like I always say, every month or two when there's a new ridiculous thing that he does in the gym... Uh, this is pretty much just like the Julius Maddox watch at this point. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this video already because because it did blow up and for good reason. Uh, but Julius Maddox has now become the first human to ever bench over 750 pounds. Uh, it was a gym lift, but, you know, clean paws, absolutely destroyed it. He's the type of guy that does either just destroy a weight or fail. But even by his standards, he destroyed this harder than I've seen him destroy most things. Uh, so it looked like there was still more in the tank. Uh, but he benched 755, which is 342 and a half kilos. Um, that is higher than his current world record, which is 337 and a half or 744 pounds. Um, something worth noting is that he set his record on his second attempt in the last meet he did. Um, and he didn't take his third because he said he was feeling some pec tightness, like potentially a strain. Um, people, myself included, got concerned like, oh, no, he's about to hurt himself like he's going to tear his pec. Uh, you know, the the legendary 800 is never going to happen. But anyway, seems like he is fucking fine. Um, and I mean, this may not matter for people who lift in kilos, but he's 10 pounds off an eight plate bench in pounds, 765. That's crazy. Like, if you deadlift 765, I don't care who you are and how big you are, that's a crazy number for deadlift. Like, that's that's a really, really impressive number. Uh, even more so for squats, because people tend to squat more than they deadlift. Not that many people have squatted 765. He's getting pretty damn close to benching it, which is just wild. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Julius is like one of those lifters that his lifts look deceptively easy. But somebody sent me to this, sent this to me on Instagram and I watched it. And my first thought was if I had a lifter who sent me that video and said, hey, my third attempt went up, I'd be a little bit bummed that we left so many pounds on the platform. Well, I mean, it was a training lift. Yeah. He wasn't going for a true max, I don't think. Right. Yeah. but, But like the idea of like, how much he has left in the tank. Like if that was my lifters third attempt, I'd be like, ah, we played it kind of scared with with the lift selection. So I, I I have no idea how high it's going to go. It's crazy. I really hope he gets 800. That would be, that would be so cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so moving on, uh, moving on to the deadlift, uh, Yu Ren or Yang Su Ren, um, USAPL lifter has been, so I've heard rumors that he's considering doing, uh, a USPA meet um, just to allow for a whippy bar. So he's um, he's a very good deadlifter. He's an 83 kilo lifter or 183 pounds. Um, has always competed tested. Um, so one would assume that he's still drug free. Uh, posted a video recently deadlifting 850. Um, he's one of those guys with like a super, super hyper efficient sumo deadlift. We've talked about him on the podcast before. I think he previously deadlifted something like 820. Um, 
But yeah, so 850 is getting close to stupid type numbers. Um, so like I said, Yu Yu Ren, at least for the last like four or five years, every meet he's done has been tested. Um, no reason to believe he's not still clean, but just wants to play around with a whippy bar, which, you know, tends to help sumo deadlifters quite a bit. Uh, in the 850, it looked like there was more left in the tank. And the thing worth noting is that the world record in, uh, the 82 and a half kilo class or 181 is 400 kilos by Dmitry Nasanov. Um, which for my money, honestly, may be the most impressive deadlift record on the books. Um, like I remember when I got into the sport, the, the two deadlift records that just kind of like stuck out like a sore thumb because they were so much crazier than everything else was Ed Cohn had pulled 859 at 198 and 903 at 220. Um, and Nasanov has pulled close to 900 at 181 now. And for my money, Cone's 859 was at 198 was a little better than his 903 at 900. Um, but he's now like beat that pretty convincingly. Uh, so Yu Yu Ren is closing in on Ed Cone's old 198 record at 183 uh, and is also closing in on Nasanov's 400 kilo record at 181. Um, if he managed to pull that off, that would be wild. Because like I said, I, I think that that is still the most impressive deadlift record on the books. And Nasanov is not a tested lifter. <laughs> um, and it's also, if he put if he even put something in the neighborhood of like 840, 850 on the books, it would also be crazy. Because to contextualize how far ahead Nasanov is from everyone else in that weight class... Uh, so he's deadlifted 881 at 181. The second best in that weight class is John Hack, and his best in contest is 799. So like Nasanov has like 82 pounds on the rest of the field, um, and Yu Yu Ren looks like he's closing in on that. So if he can put up anywhere in the mid eights in a meet, that would be just wild. Uh, in more kind of like lightweight deadlift news. Matthew, I think that's pronounced Aramony, Aramony, um, had a gym lift deadlifting a, a, what looked to be a quite comfortable 305 kilos, which is 673 uh, at a body weight of 66 kilos or 145 pounds. That uh, is also like seven, seven and a half kilos over the current world record in his weight class, uh, which is 298 by Hassan El Bagidi. Um, so, so kind of comparing UU's gym lift and Matthews, uh, UU Ren's best deadlift in competition, I believe, is 749. Um, that's on a stiff bar, and I've heard he has grip issues. I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, so, like, the numbers he's hitting in the gym now are, are way above anything he's previously done in competition. Matthew Aramoni has gone 290 in competition before. So the 305 gym lift isn't too far above that. Um, and, and he's proven he can pull huge numbers on the platform before. If he is able to hit 305 in a meet, uh, that would beat the tested record in his weight class, which, like I said, is 298. Um, and it would also break the untested record, which was just set uh, a couple months ago, which we talked about on the podcast, uh, 303 kilos by Michael Estrella. 
Um, so anyway, in th- this is another one where you should you should check out the video because it is just just a buttery smooth, hyper efficient sumo deadlift. Um, which I know some people don't like sumo, but like they're dumb. I think a well executed sumo deadlift is a thing of beauty, and he has absolutely tremendous technique. Um, moving on, there was. There was a lift that kind of flew under the radar, which I think may be a harbinger of things to come. Uh, so Mihao Li, uh, Chinese lifter, squatted 420 kilos or 926 pounds at 275 or 125 kilos. That is the number three all-time squat in that weight class behind only Zaheer and Eric Lillibridge. One note... I don't know what's going on with Zaheer these days. Uh, he said he was going to squat 550. Haven't heard much from him in the last 18 months. Hope he's doing well. 100% the most entertaining lifter ever. His Instagram presence, fucking fire. Zaheer, I hope everything's well. Hope training is good. Uh, but anyway, so Mihao Lee, number three all-time squat in that weight class. He's only 23 years old, so that sets the all-time junior record in that class. Uh, But the thing that's the most notable about it, I think, is that he is a Chinese lifter and China, China may be about to just destroy the sport of powerlifting, but like in a super cool way. Um, So this lift was posted on Boris Shako's Instagram account uh, and Boris said that powerlifting is majorly on the rise in China, um, which I don't have a reason to not take his word for it. And for anyone who's paying attention, uh, China is doing really, really well in weightlifting these days after not being traditionally a powerhouse. Like they they came into the sport, started winning medals, I think like some in the early 90s, but kind of around the turn of the 2000s, once they had a full generation of lifters to really work through that whole system, they just started churning out medalists left, right and center. Um there's a lot of state support for weightlifting, and they also have more humans on the planet to find talent from. Um, so if if they decide that powerlifting is next, uh, and even if it doesn't have state support, but just you know people into physical culture generally in China decide, hey, powerlifting's cool, we should do this. One, that would be good for the sport because it would be a huge influx of just lifters, period. Um, but then two, I mean... You know, you already got a guy setting the all-time junior record in the squat, 275. Uh, There very well could be, you know, a handful of genetic anomalies in a country of 1.5 billion people. That's that's very possible. Um, So, yeah, I hope it's a harbinger of things to come and that we see a lot of big lifts out of China in the near future. Uh, I think I only have three or four more left trying to work through these efficiently. Uh, next one, moving back to the deadlift, uh, is uh, Sergi or Sergey Fedosinko. Um, deadlifted, so he posted a video of himself deadlifting two ninety or six hundred ninety three pounds for a uh, for a double. Um, so he competes in the fifty nine kilo class, which is one hundred and thirty pounds. Little guy. Um, I've not met him, but I've heard he's like four foot six. So like super, super tiny. And if you watch the video, it, it will be obvious how small he is. 
um, just comparing like the heights of the plates to the heights of his body. Um, but just to contextualize how crazy that is. Um, so one thing I'll note uh, for when I talk about deadlifts that people perform in training, I'll note whether they're wearing straps or not, because for some people, it doesn't matter. They have a good grip and they just train with straps to not beat their hands up. Other people do have a pretty strong history of pulling way more in straps than they can without due to grip issues. Uh, so someone we've talked about on here before several times is is uh, Jamal Browner, who he's pulled somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 kilos, I believe, without straps, but has gone like a thousand pounds and above with straps. Um seems to be working out his grip issues, but that's something that's historically hindered him. Fedosinko is a guy who is massively limited by grip strength because on account of being like four foot six, he has really, really tiny hands. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, his deadlift number for the day is the highest number he can grip for the day. And that's, you know, that's just the game for him. Um, but, you know, lifting 290 for a double with straps shows where his actual pulling strength is. Uh, and it's it's pretty wild in context. So that's, um, that's like 12 and a half kilos over the current raw record in that weight class, which is 277 and a half by Richard Hawthorne. Um, it's also over the record at 60 kilos, which is, you know, the comparable weight class in non-IPF federations. Uh, that's 286 by Stuart Jameson. So he lifted four kilos over that for a double. Um, and then like even a little bit crazier is the record in single ply at 60 kilos is 310 by Lamar Gant, which is 683.4. And being able to pull a fairly smooth double at 290 would kind of project out a max somewhere in the low 300s, maybe 305, possibly 310. Um, so that's actually a lift that's comparable to Lamar Gant, which like, if you know anything about powerlifting, you know Lamar Gant is the god of the lightweight deadlift. Um, so, I mean, obviously Gantz is better because he did it without straps, but even to be in that same stratosphere is absolutely wild. Uh, Fedosinko is one of those guys who I feel like probably isn't discussed enough. So, a few episodes ago, I talked about uh, Yaroslav Olek and how he is arguably the goat of powerlifting. Uh, he's won like 15 straight IPF World Championships. Uh, just lost this year for the first time in international competition since like 2001 or something. Um, absolutely incredible, but a lot of people don't know about him. He doesn't get talked about enough. Fedosinko isn't quite on that level, but he's fairly close to it. Um, just generally absolutely savages everyone in, in his weight class. People know him as a fantastic all-around lifter if they do know about him, um, but you know, because he's so good all around, I think his deadlift strength does get overlooked from time to time. Um, so just kind of wanted to highlight that. Uh, and then let's see, moving on to a non-power lifter, um, Daniel Stahl or Stahl. Uh, he's a Swedish discus thrower. Uh, several people sent me this video, which like, I feel like a lot of powerlifters wouldn't appreciate this video quite enough for how crazy it is, but it, it was fucking crazy. Uh, so this guy's a discus thrower. 
uh, deadlifted 350 kilos or 771 for what looked to be a pretty comfortable set of five. And the reason I say I don't think people would appreciate this quite enough is like he was pulling sumo and he had like kind of iffy technique, not like injurious technique, but just like the bar was getting out in front of him. You could tell that he wasn't locked in super tight. Um, and if you've messed around with a sumo deadlift much, you know how much like really, really getting your technique locked in and dialed in just how big of a difference it can make. And if you watch this video, he doesn't have like crisp picture, perfect sumo deadlift form. He's just using just raw force to get it up, uh, which is generally not advisable for the sumo deadlift, uh, but still did a very comfortable set of five at 350 kilos. Um, so like on one hand, I would love to see what he could do if he transitioned into powerlifting and got a technique coach. Um, he, I mean, I could see him putting up some absolutely absurd number. On the other hand, he is arguably the best discus thrower in the world right now. So he's not going to do that. Uh, quick little aside about discus is uh, Daniel Stahl is the reigning world champion in the discus. He won worlds in 2019. Um, he also has the longest throw since 2009. Uh, he threw 71.86 meters. Um, and this past year, he actually fouled on a throw, like he stepped over the line uh, on a throw that went somewhere in the neighborhood of 73 or 74 meters. Uh, since he fouled it, they didn't measure it out. But um, the reason that's noteworthy is the world record in the discus is 74.08 meters. And that record has stood since 1986. One of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is like everyone just assumes that athletes are getting better in every sport and records are falling in every sport. But regardless of what you think about drug testing in Olympic sports now, it's better than it was in the 80s in that like athletes do get tested sometimes <laughs> and can't just blast all of the gear they want year round forever. Um, so like for a fair amount of sports, there are records from the eighties and early nineties that are still on the books that people haven't really even challenged. Uh, and discus is one of them. And so Daniel Stahl looks to be someone who could potentially challenge the, the discus world record, which hasn't seriously been done since 2006. Um, so anyway, he's not going to transition to powerlifting, but it would be cool if he did. Um, okay, so finishing up, last three. I realize this is the longest feats of strength ever, but whatever. People just took time off being strong over winter break, uh, and now they're back to being strong again, so there's a lot. Uh, John Hack broke the all-time world record at 90 kilos, or 198, um, Traditionally competes at 82 and a half kilos or 181. Uh, I don't know if he was planning on going 198 this meet and just didn't cut or whether he's 198 forever now. Um, but if it's the latter, he seems pretty comfortable in that weight class because he, like I said, did his first meet, broke the all time world record, totaled 932 and a half or 2,055 pounds. Uh, that breaks the, the world record with knee wraps by 15 pounds. And he competed in sleeves. Um, so, yeah, he's uh, pretty much made the 181 class his bitch. And in his first attempt at the 198 class, 
it is also now, in fact, his bitch. Um, so props to him. Uh, let's see. Second to last one, going to save, in my opinion, the best for last. Uh, Rhea Stin, who is a female single ply lifter, benched uh, 225 at sub 84 kilos. So 225 is what, like 496 pounds. Um, that's 12 and a half kilos over her own world record. She did that in the gym, but you know, she's an IPF lifter. Everything looked very locked in very much like it would be replicable on the platform. Um, so yeah, she's the best in the world in that weight class and looks to be pretty close to the 500 pound barrier, uh, in the 84 kilo class, which is pretty wild. Uh, and then, my personal favorite, another guy we've talked about on Feats of Strength before, 17-year-old Jackson Powell. Um, last time we talked about him, he had, I don't know, he'd squatted like 765 for a double in the gym or something like that. Um, and like folks all over the internet, it, it was shot from like a shitty angle. It was like behind him. It was, it was like behind kind of like obliquely and above which is the worst angle imaginable to see depth, but people were like, ah, he's cutting it super high. Like, that's not legit at all. Anyway, he did a meet. Uh, he squatted 832, and it got passed, and it was convincingly deep from a front angle, uh, and totaled 1856. So, uh, yeah, kid's fucking strong. <laughs> um, that's the biggest squat by anyone 17 years old by, by about 30 pounds. Uh, and it's also about 90 pounds over the biggest total anyone's hit at that age. Um, I mean, he's he's close to a 1900 total uh, at 17, which is wild. Um, so anyway, I think that's fucking cool. That kid's so strong. Uh, and you should watch the video, too, because like it, he very well may be it, he may be like the squat version of. uh of Julius Maddox where he either just blows it up or misses. I mean, that's a possibility, I guess, but it looked like he had a lot in the tank on his 832. Uh, and his third attempt deadlift as well looked like he had a lot left in the tank. So, I mean, kid's already crazy strong, but he has a very bright future ahead of him in the sport. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned the, that video angle, how you said it was like to the side, kind of behind and from above. So it's really hard to tell. So there was a video of Steffi Cohen recently squatting 462 at a body weight of about 125 from a monolift with wraps, but it ha- it sounds like it had the same kind of angle. It was like behind to the side elevated, and so a lot of people were like, "Oh, that's really high." I couldn't really tell because the angle was so ridiculous for the the video, but I did see that recently she squatted like 440 for three with like really good depth from a good camera angle. So like the idea that she could get 462 for one is not particularly surprising. Anything from above and behind, it always looks high. Yeah. Like I've seen maybe three squats ever, uh, which didn't look super high from that angle. And they were all from weightlifters, just like ass to grass where it's like, well, you know, you're, when I look at, how it looks like your thigh is maybe it looks like you're slightly below parallel but i see that your ass is literally in contact with your shoes uh (laughs) so i will take that as evidence that you are well below parallel but yeah anything even within sniffing distance of parallel if you're two inches below parallel from a camera angle that's like 
behind slightly to the side and above hip level it's gonna look like six inches high yeah yeah so to the the video did look kind of high but i think it was purely just a kind of an optical illusion but in any case if you're putting 462 on your back at 125 that's pretty wild i saw some of the comments on that people were like oh, ego lifting it's like what the fuck are you talking about you know she competes she's pulled she has like the second she has the second highest wilkes all time right I'm not sure. I think she does. I she's mean, strong as hell. If she yeah. doesn't have an ego, she ought to get one because yeah. she's a freaking. I mean, she's a beast. And, so like, and if she's gotten that strong from ego lifting, like, what the fuck can you say? It's clearly working for her. Yeah, yeah, that stuff <laughs> kills me, man. All right, so let's move on. We're gonna do some Q and A's today. Um, first Q and A question comes from Grant. You want to go ahead and read me into that? Yeah. So Grant asks. A few episodes ago, you guys mentioned something about fat-free mass index, or FFMI. It made it sound like the notion of 25 being some kind of upper limit was a bit silly. Yes, we did. Uh, That is true. Uh, I agree in that genetic outliers exist. I was wondering what percentage of guys you think could break that barrier naturally. I personally don't know of anyone that I'm confident is natural anywhere close to 25, for reference, what is Eric's estimated FFMI in lean condition? What about the other Eric, which is Helms? Yeah, so I'm going to start out with the end there. Like, I don't know what my fat-free mass index is. I don't, like, I've never bothered to calculate it because I know I'm not even close to what anyone would consider a natural limiter. So, like, it's never been of interest to me because I know I've got a lot of room to go. Uh, same thing with Helms. I don't know what his fat-free mass index is. It's it's probably kind of high because he's kind of tall for a bodybuilder. There is kind of a positive bias for taller people. But in any case, let, let's get to some of the other aspects of the question. So what percentage of people could attain a fat-free mass index above 25? There's a couple studies in athletic populations we can use to look at some of those percentages. So my lab group in 2017 published a paper uh, we looked at Division One and Division Two college football players. Uh, in the Division One athletes, thirty-one uh, percent of the sample had fat-free mass index values above twenty-five, so nearly a third. In the Division Two uh, sample, eighteen percent had fat-free mass index values above twenty-five. And Division Two football, for those who aren't familiar with American football. It's not particularly elite. You know, if if you've got someone going from a Division II football team and having like a, a notable kind of high profile professional career in the sport, it is a bit of a feel good story. It's kind of like, oh, wow, he kind of made it up from a D2 team and, and kind of, you know, did something. And it's generally someone who is a massive late bloomer where, yes, yeah. you know, by the time they're in their sophomore year playing D2, they're like, just a fucking physical specimen, but they, you know, hadn't hit their growth spurt yet by 18 when colleges were recruiting. Yeah. It's almost exclusively a story like that. Yeah. So if you're going to come into this and tell me that, you know, a fifth of division two football players are on steroids because the stakes are simply that high. I'm going to laugh in your face. I'm not going to entertain that concept whatsoever. It's ridiculous. Um, 
So there was another study by Courier et al. in 2019 that looked at fat-free mass index in a variety of collegiate athletes. I can't remember off the top of my head if it was Division Two or Division Three, um, but it, but it definitely wasn't Division One. And they found that three separate sports had a 75th percentile cutoff that was above 25 for fat-free mass index. Uh, so for football, weightlifting, and rugby. So it kind of makes sense for those sports. They generally favor people with a reasonably high degree of muscularity. They also found uh, that three additional categories had a 75th percentile cutoff that was above 24. So track and field, water polo, and then just all of the athletes combined into a big group. I mean, that's not fair. Everyone knows water polo players are notorious mass monsters. <laughs> that That is true. Absolutely. Um, now... A lot of people, when they talk about these fat-free mass index things, like, yes, for for the the statistics from football players, football players do tend to have relatively higher body fat levels. That does generally allow you to push your fat-free mass index value a little bit higher. So if you look at like sumo wrestlers, we'll see values well into the the mid and even high 30s, right? I mean, it's there's definitely something to the body fat component. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about... uh, about this question is that everyone's like, so what percentage of people can be absolutely shredded, you know, on stage bodybuilding type conditioning with a fat free mass index above 25? I think you have a way better shot getting your fat free mass index to 28 than you do of ever being in contest shape. <laughs> Like, honest to God, the percentage of the population that's going to get there, I think, is astronomically larger for having a fat-free mass index of 28 at any body fat compared to just the general premise of getting into bodybuilding shape. I mean, the the other thing I'll say as well is like the caveat of, well, only 25 was only meant to be a limit for people who were shredded on the bodybuilding stage. There's no basis for that. That's just shit that people made up because when people were proposing a limit of 25, there were you know, hundreds of examples to the contrary. And folks would be like, oh, but they're not shredded. Uh, The actual study that people cite to get the limit of 25, uh, Curry et al., 1995, um, says that like if people are quite fat, maybe they can get above an an FFMI of 25. But if you actually look at their sample that they used to derive what they presented as a limit of 25, uh, the, the body comp was... And I, I should have pulled this up, but I want to say for the drug, the drug free cohort, uh, body fat percentage was like 12 and a half plus or minus 4.5% body fat. Um, so, I mean, even within one standard deviation, which is like normal shit, uh, if you're proposing that as a limit, you also have to take on board that it should apply to people up to at least 17% body fat. Um, and if you're just saying that it, that research says it only applies to people in stage lean condition, I'd say show me your reference because there's not one. Like that's just something people made up after the fact. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, it's tough to get in stage condition, period. It's even more tough to be in stage condition and have a ton of muscle. But the idea that being above 25 is some kind of super rare thing, I just don't think the data support that contention. Um, especially if you give yourself a little flexibility with what body fat body fat range you're considering. Um, it's not that rare to see relatively decent football players get into the 28, 29, and 30 range. It, it's just not. And we're talking about at, you know, 
a division one program that's by no means, you know, attracting all the, the most elite, you know, I mean, there's what, how many division one football programs are there? Like 129, yeah. something like that. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about a large, large, large number of people in one singular sport that are that are floating around 27, 29, no problem, without being, you know, 35% body fat. It's not like this is all sumo wrestlers. So I, I just don't see the data supporting this contention that it's hard to be fairly lean. I mean, no one gets contest ready. No one does, unless you're a pro bodybuilder. But you can be pretty fairly lean and comfortably above 25. And I think the data is far more in support of that than against it. Um, and then you, you even look at the Corey paper back in, what was it, 95? Yeah. When they looked at the uh, the Mr. America winners from 19, I think it was 39 to 59 yeah, that they right. looked at. And we're, yeah, dude, the, the training and nutrition methods in 39 to 59 were not great. They really weren't. And they were still finding examples of plenty of people over 25 in pretty damn good shape. And so one of my main things well, is and, like... And the, the other thing just to note about that further is that the Mr. America winners, in very few circumstances, were they at their all-time biggest when they won the Mr. America? Because John Grimmick won, I believe, in 42 and 43, or 43 and 44, one of the two. Um, but his second win, he was just so much better than everyone else that they were like, oh, we need to institute a rule that people can only win Mr. America once because John Grimmick is just going to completely cannibalize our competition for the next decade. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, those are the FFMIs of the Mr. America winners presented in the Corey paper. But, you know, that is just what their FFMI was at the time that they won. If they kept training, like, they probably kept getting bigger after that as well. So we don't even know that that was the peak muscularity of those particular Mr. America winners, much less the peak of theoretical human muscularity. Right. And so whenever I have this conversation, I always concede, listen, it probably does take some very solid genetics to be at 25 and to be super shredded. And if you're going to be at 25 and super shredded, it means when you're bulking up, you're probably going to have to be comfortably above 25. You know, you're probably going to be up into, into the higher 20s, which we've seen many, many, many times in people that aren't even bodybuilders. These are just people who want to be strong so they can be good at football, right? So if they trained for bodybuilding, they'd be higher. You, you would have to assume, right? I mean, I think, I, oh, I think I that's mean, a, one would certainly think a pretty fair assumption, right? I mean, it. so in any case, uh, I always concede, yeah, it probably takes some decent genetics, but that also brings brings us to the idea of if it's a low probability thing, how rare does that really make it? for an individual to get there. You know what I mean? So the idea, are we talking about a low percentage chance or are we talking about an absolute unicorn that just defies our imagination in terms of genetics? And I think you have a really sensible way of looking at that statistically. Yeah, so I, I wrote some articles about this back in the day. Um, I actually wrote several articles about steroids and the one where I go through all of this is the most stats heavy and consequently the one the fewest people read. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, w when you go through and look at the studies, so like fat, fat free mass index is not a common thing for studies to report, but of the ones that do for a sample of people who aren't university athletes, cause, cause one could say like, 
oh, well, even D2 football players probably do have better genetics for getting big than people in the typical population, which which is a very fair assumption to make. You know, the, the D2 athletes, as Eric said, aren't unicorns, but they are probably more physically gifted than the typical person. Definitely. Um, yeah. So if you go through and look at studies that do just take normal gym-going populations and that do report fat-free mass indices, you tend to see that fat-free mass index of just day-to-day lifters in gyms with two-plus years of resistance training experience somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 plus or minus two. Um, So like fat-free mass index of 22 isn't particularly big, but plus or minus two, that's a fair amount of variability. So within one standard deviation, you know, you're somewhere between a 20 and a 24, um, which, you know, 20, it's not big, but people will probably be able to tell you lift. Maybe 24 is quite big, but it just one and a half standard deviations from the mean, which still isn't an outlier by any means. At that point, you're at 25. Uh, and so what one and a half standard deviations from the mean means in a probability sense is that's roughly 93rd percentile. It's like 93.4 percentile, something like that, um, which means that you should anticipate a fat-free mass index of 25 being achievable by one out of every 14 or 15 people, You know, which is certainly worse probability than a coin flip, but also isn't unbelievably rare. Uh, there are some caveats to this, of course. So one is that... Um, I would assume that even just like people who, you know, stick with lifting for two years, but are just in the normal gym going population, they are probably a little bit more genetically gifted than just folks in the general population on average, mostly because, you know, if you take up lifting and you get no gains from it and don't get anything out of it, you're probably not going to stick with lifting very long. So I do think that people who stick with lifting for a few years, just due to that natural filter, do have at least slightly better than average genetics for getting big. Um, But on the flip side, these studies don't recruit people specifically who are at their genetic limit of muscularity. So I think those two things kind of balance out to some degree. Um, So I think the one out of every 14 or 15 people is certainly a pretty rough estimate. Um, But if, if you like, if there was a, a population study where you took like, a million people and had them train hard for five years. If the number of people who wound up with a fat or the the number of men, at least who wound up with a fat free mass index over 25, if it was less than 1%, I'd be pretty surprised. And if it was more than 10%, I'd be pretty surprised. But like any number between like one and 10%, like within that order of magnitude would make, it would match my observations it would also match like the current estimate we can get from the research. Um, and that's one of those numbers where like for any given individual, it is less likely than it is likely. But it's also not something where you have to be some sort of absurd genetic outlier to get there. Right. I mean, you're talking about millions of people walking around in the United States that have that potential. Correct. Yeah. So. Um, you know, just to kind of wrap things up, I, I, I certainly would never suggest that it's like a super common thing. Like, oh, yeah, most people can get to 25 shredded. But um, I don't think it's quite as rare as people make it out to be because a lot of people make it out to be like a hard physiological boundary that cannot be circumvented. 
And I don't think the data support that. And uh, I also very much question the utility of even defining a limit like that, because it's like one of those things people like say, hey, am I near my genetic limit? In most cases, they're not actually going to do anything with that information. They're going to feel something based on your answer. But like, it's always just like, dude, we'll just keep trying and, you know, keep training hard. And like we talked to Mike Tushier the other day, yeah. a couple months ago. And he was like, well, he, he's been a world-class strength athlete since I was in high school. And I think the phrase he used was, I'm going to keep turning over more rocks, right? Yeah. In, until until there are no more rocks to turn over, there are some gains out there theoretically to be had. And he's going to seek them. Yeah. I, I mean, when someone asks me that question of like, do you think I'm close to my limits? My answer is always just like, yeah, train for another five years and let me know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Because <laughs> like, dude, like that's, how you, that's how you answer that question. And, yeah. and that is the only way I am aware of that you can answer that question. Yeah, yeah. So again, I, I don't think it's a super common thing. I wouldn't say, oh, definitely most people can get there. But if someone tells me, hey, I got to 25 and I'm pretty shredded, do you think we should do some kind of case study to figure out how this could possibly be happening? I'd be like, no, like that makes sense. That should be a thing that happens sometimes. So like the idea that you're going to use it as like a hard cutoff and make it the final determinant of the natty or not discussion. I I, I just don't buy into it. Oh man. So <laughs> uh, whenever this comes up, the thing that always comes to mind immediately is in, in so like I don't know if he still believes this or not, but back in the day, uh, Gregory O'Gallagher made a video where he went and got a DEXA scan um, and his fat free mass index came out at like I think it was like twenty four point six. Uh, he was just like feast your eyes, guys. This is as big as a person can get. <laughs> um and I mean, like, you know, dude's jacked, like he has a, a good physique, but just like the, I don't know, I I could never conceive of myself in any context getting on camera and doing that. I'd be like, yeah, maybe have another half a kilo that I could put on somewhere. But, uh, you know, th- this is the peak. Humans can't <laughs> get bigger than this without drugs, especially because like he doesn't even train legs hard, right? I don't know. I have no idea. I think that's a thing where he's like, yeah, you don't want to get big legs. They're unesthetic, just like do plyos and jumping and stuff. So, I mean, even just based on that, unless he thinks that plyos maximize lower body hypertrophy, that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird claim to make. And also just like, again, I, I w- watching that video and putting myself in that position. <laughs> yeah. I, I just could never see myself ever saying that. Yeah, I I will say this. The people who believe in 25 as being this hard cap, there's an inverse association with how much time they've spent with really elite athletes who Mm -hmm. do strong person stuff, football, lifters, just really high level athletes in those endeavors. Because, man, I've been around some like NFL combine training stuff and just talked to some of the athletes. They literally have some of them have never put one moment of thought into what they eat at all they they eat when they're hungry and they eat the stuff they've always ate because it tastes good and they they look like just the absolute peak human physique and you're like dude you could easily add so much to that physique if you even thought about it and so like it, there's something to be said about hanging out with freaks 
and it, it will really change your mind about what is potentially possible for a human. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to the next question here. This one is also by Grant. Is that a mistake we made or is that for real? A lot of Grants out there, maybe. It might be a different Grant. I'm yeah. not sure. I think there are more than one. But in any case, uh, Grant asks, what are your thoughts on touch and go deadlifts compared to resetting between reps for general gym bros who are just trying to get jacked? Personally, I can do several more reps, close to double, when doing touch and go, but I've read that you are better off to let the weight settle between reps. What do you think, Greg? Uh, So that's a good question. Um, I am personally of the opinion that bouncing probably isn't a great idea, but that touch and go is just fine and possibly even advisable. Uh, Reason why I would advocate against bouncing is... One, first and foremost, like there's going to be a fair amount of shock when the weight hits the ground, Um, you know, not trying to catastrophize anything or nocebo anyone out there. But, you know, if you are going to have an acute injury, generally big spikes or big changes in forces over a very short period of time is a is a reasonably decent way to go about accomplishing that. Um, So, yeah, bouncing, not a huge fan Um, I mean, there are times to bounce if you're a strongman competitor and you're doing axle deadlifts and they have bumpers on the bar, uh, or there's like a relatively spongy platform that you can get a bounce off of like, dude, like it's your sport. Uh, you're going to score points for getting more reps. If you can get more reps bouncing, like do it. Um, but you know, this guy's asking with the assumption that you're just a normal gym bro and you're just trying to get big. In that context, I would recommend against bouncing. Um, But if you're doing touch and go, assuming that it's just like a soft touch um, or, you know, you're not just like slamming the weights down uh, and and calling it touch and go. But really, it's like slam and then immediately reverse it. I think that's perfectly fine. I think uh, one, there's probably not going to be any meaningful increase in in risk of acute injury again as long as the the uh, touch is relatively soft which unless you're in specifically a strength sports gym it will probably need to be because people will come over and chew you out if you're too loud about your touch and go deadlifts Um, so I think that it's not necessarily going to increase risk I think it is going to give you the added benefit of forcing you to do a real eccentric Um, so the if you look at the research on like eccentric only training compared to concentric only training compared to like combined eccentric and concentric people used to think back in the day that like the the majority of the strength gains you got were just from the or just from the eccentric so like you know maybe by doing full reps you're actually limiting your hypertrophy because you can handle more load eccentrically than you can concentrically so if you're you know, doing like normal isotonic reps, you're actually limiting the eccentric loading you're doing and leaving growth on the table. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, It doesn't seem like you need to necessarily maximize eccentric loading to maximize hypertrophy, but uh, you are probably missing out on some growth if you are mostly eschewing the eccentric. Like you don't grow as much from concentric only training as you do eccentric or combined training. Um, and so a lot of times when people are resetting deadlift reps, they're either 
they're either dropping the bar or like not dropping it. They're keeping their hands on it, but they're really not resisting it as it goes back to the ground. Uh, and then they reset and pull another rep. Uh, if you're doing touch and go, if you are going to touch and go, you need to be in control of the bar when it's at the ground. Um, so I think that I think that in terms of like general training adaptations, if you're doing touch and go deadlifts or if you're resetting between reps um, and you're you're actually doing eccentrics either way, like if you're resetting, but you are still controlling the bar to the ground, sitting it down softly, resetting, pulling again. I think that and touch and go will probably give you pretty similar uh, training effects. Uh, and I think if I was going to give a benefit to one or the other, it would probably be touch and go just because it forces you to do that. Um, where like you can't get lazy towards the end of a set and start kind of skimping on the eccentric. Um, so that's that's my personal feeling on the on the topic. Bouncing isn't good. Resetting is good as long as you're actually doing the eccentric and touch and go, I think, is um I think it's good. I mean, so it's weird. People treat the deadlift as if it's some sort of like just weird thing and completely different than every other exercise um, compared to something like a bench or a squat where, you know, I guess with a bench, there's a clear bottom because you're touching the weight on your chest. But with the squat, you just go down, stop, come back up. Uh, if you're doing a touch and go deadlift, it's essentially the same thing, except it's kind of like. It's kind of like a box squat that you might see in an athletic training type facility where they have like a soft pad on the box and they have people squat down till they can like feel the pad on their butt and then come back up but not like fully sit on it. If you're doing a soft touch and go deadlift, that's essentially the same thing. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you're a power lifter, I think you should definitely practice resetting enough and pulling enough like first reps that, you know, actually maxing a deadlift on the platform isn't going to be a big surprise. But for just like a normal gym bro, like I think touch and go is just fine and possibly even preferable. Yeah. So I, I you know, the last like five or six years, I did a lot of work with a special Olympics powerlifting team. And, you know, we have to be really attentive to technique and making sure that we're going to be able to translate exactly the way we're training onto the platform and minimize as many variables as we can. Um, which is true for essentially any type of powerlifting, really. But, you know, w- what I would always do is whenever I have a lifter who their first repetition on the deadlift was always their tough one, and it just, the, the technique technique was a little sloppy, but once they got in the groove of their touch and goes, it would really clean up rep after rep. With those guys, I'd say, hey, we're resetting every single rep because we need to fit. We need to figure out that technical deficit on that first rep off the ground. So I, I think that's one additional cat. I agree with everything you said, but one additional caveat is if you are a touch and go deadlifter and your first deadlift just kind of sucks, but then once you get into the flow of the touch and goes, it really cleans itself up or you you just have a better groove with the touch and go reps. I think that might be something to focus on. If that's the case as well, something that may be worth doing Uh, is comparing your technique on your first rep versus your touch and go reps. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes what you see um, is that once you, once you get the, the touch and go going is that you hinge more and squat less. Um, So in general, I think 
I don't think it's a bad idea to try to set up with like kind of lowish hips and then just, you know, the bar won't break the ground until your hips rise high enough to where they need to be. Um, but I think for, for people who, uh, do characteristically do well with touch and go, but really struggle to get that first rep off the ground, it may be worth experimenting with a higher hip position for, Mm -hmm. for your first rep. Um, cause that will be getting you more into the position that you would be getting into for touch and go more often than not. Definitely. All right. Looks like we are getting into the nutrition side of things with this next question from Chris. Yeah. So Chris asks, you guys have talked about diet breaks before while cutting. Do you think it would be beneficial to do the same for bulking? For example, bulk for three weeks, maintenance for one. So the, the only theoretical benefit I could see here is if you just really hate eating and you're just like, I need a break from this. Um, I, I could see there being some kind of subjective psychological benefit potentially. But um, in terms of the physiology behind it, I would say you probably don't want to take diet breaks on a bulk. The reason being is the physiological responses to bulking and cutting are mechanistically distinct. So when we talk about these diet breaks, uh, when it comes to weight loss diets or while cutting, there's kind of a specific cause and this is a very targeted solution to that cause. So, you know, whenever we start a cut, we, we typically see that leptin begins to drop um, and, and we feel that drop in leptin and it, it starts to induce both short and long term changes that are pretty pronounced. Um, so we, we can identify this leptin drop. It's sensitive to both short term and long term energy stores. And leptin really is if you were going to take all the aspects of metabolic adaptation and the related kind of side effects related to it you could really pin the vast majority of that on leptin. And and so what we'll see is if we have people doing like a big weight loss diet and they have all the key signs of metabolic adaptation, if we literally just do a leptin infusion, we we solve most of those problems almost instantly. Um, So a lot of the the idea behind these... um, these diet breaks while cutting is to attenuate some of those metabolic adaptations that are resulting from from low leptin levels. And so uh, y- you can argue exactly how strong the evidence is for that. Um, there are some good examples of studies in which various diet break interventions have been somewhat helpful in, in trying to attenuate aspects of metabolic adaptation. It's by no means a cure. It's it's not like, uh, you know, a complete game changer for dieting, but I do think it's one of the few solutions that actually makes sense to try to implement while, while doing a diet. And, you know, we're going to see a lot more diet break research coming, coming out in the coming years. We'll see if it continues to pan out like some of the early promising stuff has indicated. Um, but even if there's not a physiological benefit, there should at least, especially when dieting, Everybody could use a a week off of their weight loss diet from time to time. So even if that leptin physiology isn't really coming through and making meaningful changes, at the very least, I I could see big time application of the psychological or subjective benefits. But theoretically, when we're dieting, we're on a weight loss diet, you know, cutting weight, whatever you want to call it, we have those drops in leptin eating at energy maintenance, uh, you know, in energy balance for a short period of time might give us a transient increase in leptin levels, which might help to attenuate some of those adaptations we associate with the drops in leptin. Now, if we look at the reverse situation, if we look at, well, what about a diet break while bulking? 
Now, definitely there is a physiological response to overfeeding. It tends to vary widely between people, but there are some people that are pretty resistant to weight gain and in really well-controlled interventions where we overfeed them in experimental conditions. What we'll find is that they have adaptations to that overfeeding where they basically match their expenditure to that caloric surplus and are very, very resistant to actually storing additional weight in response to that overfeeding. Some people have a much less pronounced uh, response to overfeeding. You overfeed them, they store the energy quite readily, and they gain weight. Um, so the, the problem is it, it's not as easy to, to do any kind of intervention targeting leptin that's going to really deal with that. And so what I'm getting at is with dieting, the leptin, the leptin stuff is pretty straightforward. When you're dieting due to the acute energy deficit and the loss of fat mass, we see leptin go down. And if we replace that leptin, it works. And the best way to do that is just by injecting it, but that's not a very practical solution. Now, if you're at your normal body weight and we start overfeeding you, leptin will go up as you start to gain weight. But the problem is uh, we can essentially become resistant to that leptin. So when we first started seeing this stuff with leptin and seeing how potent it was to do leptin replacement, a lot of people thought, oh, hell yeah, we solved obesity. Take an obese person, inject them full of leptin, and they're going to lose weight like crazy. In reality, that failed. Uh, What happens is somebody's at a normal body weight, they've got plenty of leptin, you give them more, they just become more resistant to that signal. So the idea that you would do these diet breaks to do anything related to leptin while bulking, um, I really don't think there's much there based on the physiological rationale. Um, Theoretically, you could give yourself a little break from bulking if you're just absolutely sick of eating. But rather than do that, I think I'm probably your your first approach before you resort to something like that would be, well, how do we just make this bulking diet a little bit more feasible and enjoyable? And so I would say, look at your diet, figure out if there are any changes you can make that enhance or I guess increase your energy intake without making you feel really full and bloated and gross. Because when people are are really hating their bulking diet, it's it's usually that. They're just like, I feel sick all the time. I'm bloated. I'm, I have no appetite whatsoever. And so in those cases, you start looking at things like, what is the physical like volume of your diet? Are there ways that you can eat less physical amounts of food while having the same energy intake? Um, you know, what's your fiber intake like? Could you maybe even tweak your protein intake to allow for, you know, maybe you have more than enough protein, you drop your protein a little bit to get some more carbs in there. Um, so just looking at what is the overall energy density of this diet and how can I make some substitution so that I still am eating enough calories, but it's just not as filling and it doesn't make me feel as bloated. So the key things I usually look for there are do we have way more protein than we need? Do we have more fiber than we need? Um, how do we make some of those substitutions? So I would say that would be the best option because, you know, if you're bulking, you want to be in a caloric surplus and any breaks you take away from that are, are just essentially extending the timeline of your bulk, but they're not actually doing anything physiologically that I can think of that is dealing with any sort of adaptive process. So the, the really short answer is, I think the best the best approach there, if you're bulking and you hate it and you feel full all the time, take a look at your food options. Try to see if you make can make some swaps to increase the energy density of what you're eating. Okay, now we got a question from Jillian. 
Um, okay, so do you have any evidence-based suggestions for a female who is looking to maintain muscle mass and gain strength, but without inducing further hypertrophy? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. And it's <laughs> the answer to the question is essentially do all of the opposites of what one would recommend if you were trying to maximize hypertrophy um, with the caveat that you're still training. So um, one of the first things one might do if they're trying to get big is uh, potentially increase training volume. If you're, you know, if you're recovering well from the current amount of volume you're doing, but you're not making gains at the rate you would like, higher volumes to a point seem to enhance muscle hypertrophy. So one of the things you can do if you're trying to keep getting stronger but minimizing hypertrophy is you can cut back on volume. Uh, and there is, I think, pretty strong evidentiary rationale for that. So there were a couple meta-analyses published in the last year to 18 months or so uh, looking at the effects of uh, training volume, so weekly sets on both hypertrophy and strength. The hypertrophy meta was from Schoenfeld and colleagues, and the strength meadow was from Ralston and colleagues. Um, and they were pretty much set up the same way. So they would categorize set volume as low, moderate, or high, with low being fewer than five sets per muscle group per week, moderate being five to nine, and high being 10 plus. Uh, and both of them found that higher volumes tended to lead to more hypertrophy and strength. But the difference between low volume, so below five sets per week, and high volume, so 10 plus sets per week, in the hypertrophy meta-analysis was, it was essentially a two-fold difference in growth. Um, but in the strength meta-analysis, it was only like a 20% difference, give or take. So, you know, you will make more strength gains by using higher volume to a point. Uh, but it's not going to be quite as large of a difference as it would be for hypertrophy. Like you're going to be leaving some rate of strength progress on the table, but not a tremendous amount, at least in the short to moderate term. Um, so that is one thing you could do. Uh, just cut back on the amount of volume that you're doing. Um, and interestingly, there was also another meta-analysis by... I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name. He's a Greek. Uh, he goes by Pak, P-A-K, and his Instagram handle is Polkarots. Uh, he's currently doing his PhD over in England, uh, and he did a meta-analysis just to look and see, like, in trained populations, so not untrained lifters, but people who have at least some degree of training experience, what seems to be the least training they can get away with and still make progress in the power lifts. Uh, so he was interested in squat, bench, and deadlift, but was only able to find studies looking at bench and squat. Um, and in that meta-analysis, he basically found that as long as you're doing one set to failure or near failure, two to three times per lift per week at somewhere in the neighborhood of like 70 to 85 or 90% one RM, uh, you'll probably be able to keep making strength gains, at least in the short to moderate term. Uh, it's worth noting that all of the studies included in that meta-analysis were using male lifters, and Jillian was asking about females. I'm not aware of a good a priori reason to assume that that wouldn't apply to females as well, but it's at least worth noting. Um, 
And it's also worth noting that the subjects in those studies did have some degree of prior training experience, but weren't like super strong and jacked. So the the average um, the average like pre-training bench press was probably close to 100 kilos squat about 140, 150. Um, so, you know, people who had some training experience, but were like kind of late beginner to early intermediate lifters. Um, but, you know, one set two to three times per week seemed to be sufficient. Um, so, yeah, you can cut back on volume pretty substantially and at least in the short term, still be able to make strength progress, if not much or any hypertrophy progress. Um, other things you can try is if you don't want to do a set to failure, close to failure at 70 to 85% one RM, you could just do quite heavy work for low reps. Um, you know, you're probably not going to grow much from doing say five singles at 90% one RM. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to do for those two sessions per week, if you wanted to do one of them where you just take you know, 75, 80% of your max and do a set to failure. And for the other one, you throw 90% on the bar and do some singles. That would probably be a good way to make some strength progress while not growing much, if any. Um, Another thing you can do is just make sure you always train quite far from failure. So we've talked about We've talked about the concept of effective reps on this podcast before, and just generally, do you need to train to failure very close to failure to maximize hypertrophy? Um, And kind of my takeaway from all of that is that, like, you have to be kind of close to failure, but you don't need to go all the way there to maximize hypertrophy on a per set basis. But if you stay quite far from failure, um, you will probably at least be able to limit hypertrophy to some degree. Um, and there have been three studies now uh, testing um, testing strength gains after various degrees of velocity loss. So th- that would equate to training different training at different proximities from failure. Um, so the earliest study was testing twenty percent versus forty percent velocity loss per set. Uh, And there were two more that came out this month testing uh, a 50% versus a 25% velocity loss per set. Uh, And then another one testing just a 5% versus a 25% velocity loss per set. And in all three of those studies, um, the, the group that trained with a smaller velocity loss per set, so training further from failure, uh, gained just as much strength as the group training, uh, with a larger velocity loss per set and thus closer to failure. So you can probably, you know, if you look at your training program now and say you're doing five sets of five at 80%, uh, first one, maybe you have three reps in reserve and last one, maybe you just have one rep in reserve. You're pretty close to failure. Uh, at least in the short term, you can probably make some strength gains by still doing five sets at 80%. And instead of doing sets of five, just doing doubles or triples. Um, again, probably not going to grow from that. It's probably going to be quite far from failure, probably a little bit further from failure than is optimal to, to maximize hypertrophy, certainly, and will probably still promote some hypertrophy, but not a ton. Uh, but at least in the short to moderate term, you should be able to make strength gains off of it. And then another one, um, which, you know, this is like, if you love your current training program and don't want to change a thing about it, you could just take an ice bath after training, which 
you know, maybe you hate ice baths, which if so, cool, you're the same as like 98% of people. Um, but there's pretty consistent research at this point, like four or five studies showing that taking like a 15 minute ice bath after training severely limits hypertrophy on training programs that are pretty strongly hypertrophic. Um, so if you just don't want to think about programming and you like your current program, but you're just growing too much on it, um, more than you would prefer, you can just hop in the ice bath, uh, deal with the cold and limit some of the growth you get from it. Um, so those are all strategies you can use. And one of the things I've said probably 30 times as I've been answering this question is these are things you can do to keep making strength gains in the short to moderate term. Uh, the reason I, I always couch it in, in the short to moderate term is that eventually you're going to be limited by the amount of muscle mass you have. So one of the things we see looking at various lines of research is that there is a lot of room, certainly fairly early in the training process, but also even as people get more well-trained, uh, for their strength and performance in more complex exercises to improve as their motor skill improves and as their technique improves. So, you know, if you currently squat 400 pounds and you want to squat 450, you very well may be able to get from 400 to 450 without putting more muscle on. Um, but when we strip away the skill and technique and just boil it down to the sheer ability of a muscle to contract and produce force. What we see is there is a incredibly strong relationship between muscle cross-sectional area and its ability to produce force in an isometric context. Um, and you know, isometrics are great. So just like an isometric knee extension, cause like it takes no skill whatsoever. You just sit there, you kick as hard as you can. Uh, you don't need to worry about movement efficiency. You're just kicking into something that can't move. Uh, and we see that even in untrained folks, their ability to produce force is at 90, 95% plus of their theoretical maximum. So like, you know, if you have someone kick into a, a immovable pad and see how many Newton meters of torque they're producing and then you deliver a shock to their motor nerve to force the muscle to contract as hard as possible, it's only going to add like another 2-3% to that amount of force. So like that gives us a pretty good estimate of just, just sheerly how much force a muscle can produce. Um, and that scales so strongly with muscle cross-sectional area that it's absolutely insane. Um, so there was a recent study that came out that I just reviewed in mass. Oh, that I'm going to review in mass. It comes out February 1st. Spoilers. Um, yeah. Spoilers, yeah. Um, where they were basically looking to see, like, why do more trained people produce more force than less trained people? And there were a couple little things that made, like, a small difference here and there. So, like, um, normalized muscle force was a little bit higher. Uh, the, the quadriceps moment arm, so, like, the patella tendon moment arm was a little bit longer. Um, but essentially like the largest explanatory factor was just that the trained people had way larger quads than the untrained people. Um, and you could, and like, there's a, um, like w when they ran a regression, like the untrained people and the trained people fell on the same trend line. Like the relationship between muscle mass and strength was, was the same for the entire cohort for all intents and purposes. 
Um, and also you can see that when you look at high load versus low load training research. So, uh, you know, if you have two groups and one of them is doing squats at 80% one RM and the other one's doing squats at 50% one RM, uh, they're going to get similar hypertrophy. The group squatting at 80% one RM, uh, is going to have a larger increase in squat one RM. But then if you put them on a isokinetic dynamometer, set it in isometric mode, have them kick out against it their gains in isometric strength are pretty similar in addition to their increases in muscle size. Um, so yeah, like j- just the sheer capacity to produce force that's dependent on how big your muscles are. So all of those strategies I gave before are ways that you can go about continuing to train, continuing to get reps in, continuing to get practice where you can hone your motor skills, hone your technique and keep making some strength gains with the amount of muscle you currently have. But ultimately, there's going to be a cap on how strong you can get unless you add more muscle to your frame. Um, So everything I just said is going to apply to strength gains in the short to moderate term. In the long term, you either need to decide like, okay, there's a max of how strong I can get with the amount of muscle I have, and I just have to be happy with that. Or if you're trying to maximize strength gains, you will eventually need to get bigger at some point. That makes sense. All right, so uh, one last question here. This one is from Dylan, it looks like. Yeah, so Dylan asks, uh, I lift in the morning, and I don't like to eat breakfast that early. Usually I have a shake with two scoops of whey and about 10 grams of dextrose 30 to 45 minutes before lifting. Is that enough pre-workout nutrition for an optimal workout? Would there be any benefit to a post-workout shake as well, or is the pre-workout protein sufficient? Yeah, this is a topic that comes up a lot. You know, I I coach clients. A lot of them do train early in the morning because they're like, hey, I've got a job. I got the family. I just got to get into the gym and kind of get it out of the way before I start my day. And the last thing anybody wants to hear is like, oh, you're working out at five. Why don't you wake up at three? You know, have a nice big balanced (laughs) breakfast. Let that digest. And then two hours later, you should be ready to go. So when it comes to pre-workout nutrition, it's tough. A lot of times there's a restricted time window. If you're, you know, you're busy, you got work and all that stuff. And we really have to focus in on a few factors. We need it to be digestible. So it's not going to cause any stomach discomfort or nausea while training. We want to make sure that we have some amount of amino acids in the blood in that post, like immediate post-workout period. Um, And a lot of times people think, oh, then I'll just have a shake immediately. But there's still some time before those amino acids you drink after the workout are actually present in the bloodstream and doing their thing in terms of supporting muscle protein synthesis. Um, We want to make sure that we are optimizing carbohydrate availability uh, to the extent that our macros allow. So, you know, if you're walking into uh, walking into a workout with really low muscle and liver glycogen stores and you're 12 hours fasted or eight hours fasted, that's probably not, you're probably going to be struggling late in that workout if you're doing a lot of glycolytic activity. And even though, you know, traditional resistance training isn't super glycolytic, you're still probably going to feel that on the performance end. Uh, And another thing that I don't hear people talk about a lot, but I think is critically important is just avoiding hunger during the workout. Like I tend to get hungry during workouts a lot because, uh, I suck at training on a full stomach. So if I'm ever going to miss with my pre-workout nutrition, I'm going to undereat, not overeat. And what I'll find is sometimes toward the end of a longer workout, I start getting hungry. And that's just not a place you want to be. Like 
just subjectively, that is just a horrible workout. It sucks trying to lift when you're like really, really hungry. So we don't want any of that stuff to happen. So looking out at what uh, Dylan here has presented, two scoops away, 10 grams of dextrose, 30 to 45 minutes before. Um, if I was starting from scratch, I would probably say the scoops of whey, that, that could be kind of, it depends. So like I've seen whey products that each scoop has like 17 grams of whey protein and two scoops would put you like, usually I tell people, you know, 20 to 40 grams of protein before the workout, whatever you can handle in terms of digestibility. Sometimes people are really sensitive to that. And so you might look at either a hydrolyzed whey product, or if even that isn't working, then you look for like an isolated product of essential amino acids. Um, But in any case, yeah, I, I like to give like a good or recommend a 20 to 40 gram dose of protein, depending on your body size, depending on how well you can tolerate it. If your stomach can't handle it, then just an equivalent uh, dose of just a just the essential amino acids that it would provide otherwise. So um, that's where I start with the protein. With the carbohydrate, you know, it, it does depend on both body size and the amount of glycolytic activity you're doing, your overall training volume. And it also depends on what your macros are for the day. Um, you know, sometimes we have all the calorie, all the carbs in the world to play with. Sometimes we're on really restricted carbs, but generally I like to say if we can get away with a good eh, 20 to 60 grams of carbs before the workout, 60 being definitely on the high end, but at least I like to get a good 20 grams of carbs in just to make sure that we have some degree of carbohydrate availability as we're walking in the gym, the gym door and able to, support whatever glycolytic activity we might be doing. So with pre-workout, you know, fat, I don't worry about. And if you do have issues with digestion or nausea, you might want to look at your pre-workout meal and see if you have a ton of fiber or a ton of fat in it that might be slowing digestion, particularly a high fat pre-workout diet can really induce nausea in a lot of people that are training pretty hard. Um, But I I like to get, like I said, about, you know, 20 to 40 grams of protein or an equivalent dose of essential amino acids, Um, not 20 to 40 grams, but the amount of essential amino acids you would have gotten from that 20 to 40 gram of wet, 20 to 40 grams of protein. Um, and then on the carb side, you know, 20 to 60 ish, depending on, on what you can get away with and depending on your body size. Um, with the, the idea of the post-workout shake, I don't think, you know, people have gone back and forth about this anabolic window thing. Um, it's not quite as narrow a window as, as once thought, um, I would say if you do have that sufficient protein dose before the workout, that 20 to 40 grams, it definitely gives you a lot more of a cushion in terms of how rapidly you need to get your post-workout meal in. But I would definitely say within an hour or two of training, you'll want to get that post-workout protein dose for most people. And it's one of those things where you could theoretically see downsides to prolonging that window or missing that meal, but it's... uh, it's hard to see what benefit you would get from intentionally delaying that post-workout protein feeding. So, you know, getting that protein soon after the workout within an hour or two has some potential to be beneficial, has really no potential to do harm aside from maybe just some inconvenience, but it should be easy enough to find some kind of protein containing product, whether it's a shake, a bar, or a traditional meal that you can get within that one to two hour period after. Um, so that's pretty much where I start with, with pre-workout nutrition. And if we run into issues with, uh, you know, stomach issues, hunger, kind of hitting the wall late in the workout, then we troubleshoot from there and, and tweak those parameters as needed.
makes sense to me. All right. Now, moving on, we've got a research roundup segment. We're about an hour and a half in, so we're going to have to be concise and just give very hot takes with as few words as possible. That's going to be the On the flip side, after our last episode, which was like two and a half hours, I had no less than three people message me disappointed that it was a regular like non-Q&A episode that was under three hours, <laughs> um, with two of them suggesting that now that we're recording half as often, four would be the ideal hour number for episodes. They weren't serious, though. I think at least one of them was quite serious. Oh, no. that That's... Well, I guess I okay. We'll go four then. Here we go go. for four. Uh, So this one, it's a research roundup because it's a recent paper that that I found kind of looking through the journal sweep. Um, But I also noticed that it does kind of answer a listener's question. So uh, if you're a loyal listener, and I know you are, you remember a few episodes back, I forget when we were talking a little bit about high protein diets and whether or not they were potentially harmful or or deleterious uh, in terms of health effects walked through some of the stuff when it comes to liver and kidney health. And I planted the seed. I mentioned the acid ash hypothesis related to bone health. And I don't think I sufficiently kind of closed off that thought. Like, I don't think I really wrapped it up in my discussion. So Boris had a question. He's like, hey, you talked a little bit about protein and bone and this acid ash hypothesis, but you never really tied it together. And there was actually a paper, uh, a couple weeks ago or something that that really uh, applies quite well to his question. So um, we're talking about high protein diets here and we're talking about their effects on bone health. The acid ash hypothesis basically suggests that if you're eating a high protein diet, it's going to have a high dietary acid load. Uh, and what's going to happen is the body is going to try to, you know, in response to that chronic low level acidosis, it's going to start leaching some of the minerals from bone mass to try to help buffer that acidity. And in the process, you're going to lose bone mass and bone density, ultimately leading to poorer bone health, osteoporosis, etc. And so there is uh, some grain of truth to that, that the body does have the capacity uh, to do that. But, um, you know, what I I believe I mentioned it last time. It doesn't really pan out when we look at the data when it comes to high protein diets and bone health. Historically speaking, the studies have, indica- have indicated that uh, high protein diets have either had a neutral to a slightly positive effect on long term outcomes related to bone health. Now, there is a recent meta analysis by Wright and colleagues. Uh, like I said, I think it was just a few weeks ago, but it was called Effects of Dietary Protein Quantity on Bone Quantity following weight loss, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And so what they found, uh, you know, it was a systematic review. They got all the studies that were relevant to the question, kind of combined all the results uh, mathematically. Uh, and the uh, the very brief summary of those results were that during weight loss, it, it was generally found that there was some loss of, of bone density in response to that weight loss. But the loss of both total bone mineral density and lumbar spine bone mineral density Both of those were attenuated by a high-protein diet in comparison to a low-protein diet. And the way that they uh, categorized those diets, they said it's a high-protein diet if at least 25% of the calories were coming from protein 
or if it provided at least one gram per kilogram of body mass. And listeners are probably thinking that's not high protein, but in the clinical nutrition literature, it kind of is. Um, you know, usually 0.8 grams per kilogram is what they would call like a completely sufficient intake of protein, which most lifters are absolutely um, just enraged by the concept. But in any case, uh, the, the the clinical significance of the finding was kind of debatable just because the overall size of the effect wasn't that notable. Like it, it wasn't like an amount of difference in bone mineral density that you would you would look at it and say, wow, these are two people in completely different health situations because of this difference in bone mass. Um, however, uh, it is important to note that most of these studies are pretty short term. And the longer studies that were, that lasted at least three months, the the difference between the groups was more notable. So the, the stuff that was like less than three months, bones don't really morphologically change that rapidly. Um, and, and so you have to give these studies enough time to really get a solid bone response in terms of density and bone mineral content. But the longer ones were, were more likely to find a little bit of a separation between the high protein and the low protein groups. Again, these studies would not indicate that the magnitudes they observed were like completely groundbreaking, like game changers for your health. However, it at the very least should give us plenty of confidence to say, when I do select a high protein diet because I like its effects on weight management, fat mass, lean mass performance, I'm not making a trade-off in which I'm sacrificing my bone health in fact, the opposite tends to be true where we see modest positive effects on bone health. Okay, now that is the research roundup part that I feel really good about. This next study, before we get into it, this is just speculation all over the place. This is way outside my area that I feel like really, really comfortable in, but I just thought it was fascinating. So it's kind of like when we talked about that study with lactate and epigenetics and we were like, hey, here's a cool thing. I'm not really ready to make like really hot takes about exactly what it means, but seems interesting. That's pretty much where I'm at with this one. And I'll lean on, I'll defer to your opinion on what some of the ramifications might be if you have any. But in any case, I thought this was really cool because it was a huge case of confirmation bias for me. And uh, as long as you proclaim that on the front end, I think you're safe. This is just massive confirmation bias for me. So when I say confirmation bias, late in contest prep, uh, anyone who's who's done the whole bodybuilding thing knows you're depleted, you're flat, you have no glycogen, but also during a workout, you will never catch a pump. And, and people say, oh, it's the sodium, it's the carbs, it's just the general energy deficit. It's probably all of it, but basically you start lifting and that whole idea that you start lifting, the muscle starts filling up with some fluid, it, it kind of gets larger acutely and you can sense that, you know, the whole Arnold Schwarzenegger pump thing. It just doesn't happen when, when you're pretty late in contest prep and you're still in that deficit. But what you also find is like there are some days where you're just like, it's not just that I'm underperforming with the weights. It's like I am weirdly weak, like something is happening here because I am weak as hell. And so this study just kind of, I wonder if there's something to it. So the title of the study with all, all of that uh, introductory uh, material there, the, the title of the study is Passive Muscle Tension Increases in Proportion to Intramuscular Fluid Volume. And this is by Sleboda and colleagues uh, published just within the last month or so. 
So uh, during exercise, water does diffuse into muscle. And, you know, we can see that muscle fluid volume increases. You can feel it with the pump. And estimates indicate that the fluid content of a muscle can increase anywhere from 1% to 20% during exercise. And what they were trying to look at in this study using some some interesting models is, does that have effect, an effect on the uh, passive tension provided by a muscle while it's being stretched. And so uh, what they did was they used two different models here. One was an isolated bullfrog muscle. They used the semimembranosus muscle. And in order to change the um, the fluid volume of the muscle, they would just soak the muscle in different solutions with various ton- uh, tonicities. So like if you were Remember back to your your chemistry class when they would talk about hypertonic, hypotonic solutions. They use these different solutions to kind of encourage the muscle to take up more or less fluid and alter the fluid volume that way. The other model they used was like this sleeve of flexible plastic fibers that was supposed to represent a, a collagenous extracellular matrix of the muscle. And now, Greg, let's say you've got a sleeve of flexible plastic fibers but within that, you need something to represent like a water-filled uh, bladder, so to speak. What are you going to use as a researcher? Uh, that's a good question. Well, uh, I, 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 w- I would need to think about it. But given the shape of muscles, I think who, who among us has not looked at really any muscle and thought, man, that looks like a penis? Correct. Yeah, that, that's pretty much how I feel about most muscles. And so what they did with with this study is they used this, uh, within that plastic fiber structure, they put in a Trojan ENZ non-lubricated phallic latex tube device, also known as a condom, and they filled it with different amounts of fluid to kind of uh, alter the fluid volume of this physical model. Now, what they found, uh, basically, they, they got their findings from the isolated bullfrog muscle, and then they essentially replicated it with the physical model, and they, they seemed to line up pretty well. Um, but, but what their results indicated was there was a correlation between uh, the fluid volume and the passive muscle tension that they observed, and, and that was correlated over a 20% increase in fluid volume compared to the baseline volume. And what they found is that even a 5% volume increase based on their models resulted in a a passive force increase uh, of even a little over 10%. Um, And so at at face value, these findings would would suggest that physiologically relevant uh, changes in muscle fluid volume could alter some of the passive muscle mechanics um, and and the uh, overall, just, just the amount of extra oomph you get from some of that passive tension in the muscle while lifting. Um, Because this is so far out of my area of expertise, I don't want to like over interpret the results that much, but I still found it to be very fascinating. And you can think of the, some of the potential applications. Uh, You know, like I said, it reminded me of contest prep when you're just like remarkably weak, you will never, ever get a pump. And, you know, you think, okay, well, I haven't lost a lot of muscle, but maybe this is just, kind of a bioenergetic issue. I don't have the glycogen to support uh, you know, the, the lifting activity I'm trying to do, but it really feels like there's more than that going on. And so th- this is just feeding into my confirmation bias that maybe it's the bioenergetic ramifications of low glycogen coupled with maybe you're not getting as much passive tension out of the muscle as you were hoping. 
I, I, again, this is not my area of expertise. It looks like you're about to disagree with me. So, I mean, here's, here's a question for you. Yes. Um, so most powerlifters aren't ever going to cut as aggressively as a bodybuilder will in prep. But one of the things that, that I've noticed and that a lot of my clients have reported back to me is that when you go on a cut, squats are okay. Like they may drop in strength a little bit. Deadlift is usually fine and, you know, if you're cutting from like heavyweight to smaller deadlift may even improve as your like setup gets better. Uh, but that bench just drops off a cliff. Have you noticed that the same is true? Like, do you, do you find that like upper body stuff is just really messed up? Whereas like lower body is a little bit more maintainable or is it just kind of both fall off a cliff? No. So when it comes to a normal cut, of going from like, oh, I was kind of, you know, fatter than I normally would be to like a normal body comp. I do notice that it's lift specific. It seems to be more of a kind of mechanical kind of thing. But when it gets to that like late stage prep, it's everything. It's even the simplest of exercises. A bicep curl to me feels like it's the heaviest thing in the world. Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Um, Like I said, I I don't want to... I don't want to give the impression that I'm like overextending these results and saying like, oh, this is definitely super applicable to humans in vivo. And this is definitely what I noticed during prep. But it was one of those things where because I was looking for it, I was like, oh, this totally explains it. So I, I don't want to over uh, overextend the results or have excessive confidence in it. But at the very least, I thought it was a cool paper. And, and if it does turn out to pan out to being meaningful in vivo for humans, then the applications would be cool when it comes to managing your hydration status, your glycogen status, and even osmolytic supplements like like creatine, betaine, things that increase fluid volume within the muscle. So my take on it is that it is probably still more due to glycogen and like regional glycogen depletion. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but essentially the... um, the like parts of the if you get glycogen depletion around the the myofibrils and then also uh around the machinery that that handles like calcium release and reabsorption that seems to really uh pretty substantially decrease one's ability to produce force and so kind of my thinking here and i don't know if this is true or not but my thinking here was that like when you go into an acute deficit you get some glycogen depletion, you'll probably get some regional depletion of glycogen specifically around those parts of the fiber first because like they're the most active in day-to-day life. And so when glycogen levels start getting low, that's probably those are probably the the glycogen depots that are gonna go first. And then like I don't know if this makes sense or not, but I would think just in general, that maybe upper body glycogen would deplete before lower body glycogen would, just maybe from an evolutionary perspective, because, you know, you're hungry, you're starving on the savanna, you need to hunt down something to eat, let's make sure you have energy in your legs more so than your arms to walk around and try to scavenge some stuff, I don't know. Um, But then, yeah, maybe like deep in prep, like, everything's starving you have no glycogen and then upper body or and then lower body stuff falls off a cliff too um so like that was kind of my thinking and to 
counter that study that you don't have the expertise to comment intelligently on. I'm going to present a study which I also don't have the expertise to to comment intelligently on. This is what the listeners came here yeah, for. Yeah, this is now, at this point this is a Facebook comment section. <laughs> um, so there was a another study which. So I promise I'm not trying to do a gotcha thing. Like we talked about this a little bit before we started recording and I forgot that this study was in the the journal sweep until like literally four minutes ago. Um, But a couple months ago, there was a study published called skeletal muscle fiber swelling contributes to forced depression in rats and humans, a mechanically skinned fiber study. I did see that one in the sweep. Yeah. Yeah. Where essentially they did the same sort of thing. They isolated fibers. They put them. Uh, in a solution to make them swell up Uh, and then they looked to see how much force they could produce and then they compressed them to like their original size again and then had them and then like electrically stimulated them again to produce force Uh, and it seemed like force was depressed by like 10 to 15 percent when the fibers were swollen Um, do you know how swollen like a percentage Oh, uh, fiber diameter increased by 116 plus or minus 2%. So that's big swelling. Well, yeah, it is. But here, here's what I'm thinking. I mean, it could just be a trade off type thing where as fibers swell, um, you know, they're, they're exerting more circumferential force against the sarcolemma, which is going to increase passive tension. Um, but also, due to other things the active tension decreases and so yeah. essentially at that at that point it would just be a wash yeah now you say 116 percent. that's it doubled it didn't go up by 16 percent, right it, it wasn't 116 percent of normal uh no 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 it was 116 percent of normal for the diameter fiber diameter increased to 116 plus or minus two percent okay what effect would that have on volume as a percentage? This is not the type of math people want to hear live. Uh, I mean, so it would be, it would be diameter over two times pi percentage increase over the original, um, yeah. because like length wouldn't change. I wouldn't think. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it you, you it is important that the the bullfrog study here was only looking at that passive tension. I, I do agree with you. I definitely think that the the much more meaningful uh, contributor is the localized glycogen depletion uh, within the muscle and, and its effects on the actual active force production, right? So per- particularly around the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and there there's plenty of evidence from animal models suggesting that those depots of glycogen are depleted early in the process of muscle depletion. I definitely don't think this is a key contributor, but I'm going to have to look at that study about swelling and try to square that circle and try to figure out what's going on here at a time when I have literally nothing else to do and can focus on it fully. Okay. So we'll pick this topic back up in probably eight or nine months. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's definitely fascinating. And, and I wonder... I, I would love to see a human study on that. Just like guys who are about to enter prep just take a bunch of measures of all their stuff before they start prep and then like the week before the show yeah and and just see like how much weaker did they get and what changes are associated with that yeah because because i mean you know uh helms reviewed that study not long ago where even just a short-term carb load in bodybuilders before the competition um 
even without necessarily a focused depletion phase before it, had really, I mean, it had meaningful changes on muscle thickness and cross-sectional area. I forget which one they looked at. But um, in any case, like we can see that that, that those morpho- morphological changes in the muscle in terms of their, uh, their acute size, it, it changes uh, w- within realistic uh, different nutritional parameters, you know, different interventions. And so the question is, what effect might that have on their performance in the gym outside of just having more glycogen around, like the actual change of the morphology of the muscle? You know, how would that contribute? So, ooh, ooh, actually, so I'm blanking on the name of the study. I would need to to look for it after after we get done recording. But there was a really, really cool study um, when I was, so I was just like really obsessed with, uh, uh, lateral force transmission in muscles yeah, for a while. I remember so, that. Yeah. So like muscles don't just contract end to end. Like they also transmit force into the connective tissue that runs through the muscle that's continuous with the tendon. Um, and something like 40 to 50% of the, of the force a fiber produces when it contracts is transmitted laterally to the connective tissue and not just longitudinally, like, end-to-end. And so, man, there was a paper maybe, like, three years ago that modeled this, uh, essentially showing that, like, as fibers swell, um, and also just as they contract, because, like, the the cross-sectional area of a fiber does is larger when it's contracted versus not... um, that that allows it to transmit more force laterally mm-hmm. um, than than it would be if the cross-sectional area was less. And so, I mean, that, that may be it, because both of these studies we just talked about were looking at either active tension or passive tension in individual fibers. But then when you talk about the system of the entire muscle and how those fibers would relate to fibers around them and the connective tissue, it very well could be that when a fiber gets depleted enough and can't catch a pump that, you know, maybe the effects on active and passive tension of that fiber itself is essentially a wash, but you might get meaningful effects on like a decrease in the amount of force it can transmit laterally to the connective tissue matrix around it. Um, that strikes me as a potentially plausible mechanism. Yeah, I I could see that. We're going to have to buy a bunch of condoms and try to figure it out. I guess. Run some studies. Cool. S- sounds like fun. Awesome. Um, what 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 can we stitch the condoms together with to mimic the connective tissue matrix? Uh, we'll think of something. It'll be fine. Okay. Um, you know, I had another study I wanted to talk about, but I actually don't want this to be a four-hour episode. Um, so <laughs> here's a teaser. I'm going to talk in a future episode about comparing plant-based proteins to whey even when the plant-based proteins are equated in terms of their leucine content, their essential amino acid content, uh, and their protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. Oh shit, that is thorough. Yeah, so they, they corrected just about everything. The result was the plant proteins, they ended up giving a dose of like 33 or 34 grams. The way they only gave 24 grams in order to make all those things corrected and the way actually outperformed it a little bit. That's the teaser. We'll talk about why in a future episode. Sounds like fun. Yeah, people are on the edge of their seat. They're staring at their calendar right now, just wondering how to pass the time. We're going to get sued by James Wilkes. We might. <laughs> what? It's just science, man. 
It's hashtag science. I guess. Okay, so I actually had a, a research thing to talk about as well. Yeah, I wanted to make room for yours. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so title of the paper I'm looking at is Resistance Exercise Induced Changes in Muscle Phenotype Are Load Dependent by Lim and colleagues. Um, and so essentially this was this was on its surface in terms of the intervention itself. Uh, just another like pretty standard high load versus low load training study. Um, 10 weeks of training, uh, one condition, three sets to failure at 80%, one set or other condition, three sets to failure at 30%. Um, that is, that's a pretty standard setup to look at high load versus low load training. That's been done a lot to this point. Um, this study took it a step further though, where they, uh, took muscle biopsies and looked at a lot of, just different proteins that would affect muscle structure and function and how those adapted differently uh, to high load versus low load training. So, you know, basically showing that um, even though total changes in muscle size were pretty similar, which again, they were pretty similar in the study, just as they are in virtually all of the studies that compare high load versus low load training, they wanted to see like, oh, well, maybe growth is similar, but what other... um, what uh, what other changes in in function and phenotype are taking place that differ between high load and low load training? Um, and so there was some stuff worth potentially talking about at some point. Um, so there was a, a larger increase in the thirty percent group in um, mitochondrial proteins uh, associated with autophagy. Or do you say autophagy or autophagy? I say autophagy. Okay. That's what I've been hearing more and more. For the life of me, I can't understand why it's not autophagy. Because that's like, auto is self, phagy is eat. Like, those should be different roots. I run into this with a lot of amino acid names. Like, some people say creatine, and some Mm -hmm. people say creatine. I always find it offensive when people say creatine. Mm -hmm. But then there are other amino acids with the same general, like I say theanine, Mm-hmm. But like th- there are some amino acids with that same uh, structure where I pronounce it the other way. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just yeah. whatever you feel like. Fair enough. So when I'm saying it, it's autophagy because that's what makes the most sense of the roots. Uh, so mitochondrial proteins associated with autophagy, fission, fusion. So basically stuff associated with mitochondrial adaptations were larger with the low load training condition, which I think is what most people would expect. But the thing that I found interesting and the thing I kind of wanted to pull out of this study is uh, since they were taking biopsies and not just looking at measures of whole muscle, you know, increases in thickness or cross-sectional area, uh, it showed changes in type 1 and type 2 fiber cross-sectional area. Uh, That's noteworthy because a lot of people still, a lot of people basically wonder whether load-dependent fiber-specific hypertrophy is a thing. So if you train heavier, is that going to grow your type 2 fibers more? And if you train lighter for higher reps, is that going to grow your type 1 fibers more? Uh, That's something that a lot of people believe, and it's still certainly something that's being debated a lot. Um, And it's a fair question to ask, just because there's not a tremendous amount of data on that yet to this point. Um, 
So there's a ton of high load versus low load training studies, and the vast majority of them only look at changes in whole muscle size. So whole muscle thickness, whole muscle cross-sectional area. Not that many are taking biopsies to look at changes in fiber cross-sectional areas. Um, And so to this point, most of the research in the area... (laughs) You can interpret it kind of however you want to, depending on your level of skepticism and what studies you kind of prioritize or not. Um, So in my opinion, the highest quality work in the area, um, there was a paper from Stu Phillips lab. It was comparing training at 80% to 50% uh, using mostly compound exercises in, I believe, people with some degree of prior training experience found that type 1 and type 2 fiber hypertrophy were similar in both the high load and low load condition. Um, There are a couple other studies with fairly similar findings. There are a a pair of papers from a couple Russian researchers, Natriba and Vinogradova, um, that did find fiber-specific hypertrophy with more type 2 growth with high load training and more type 1 growth with low load training. Um... And it's probably not worth getting into them too much now, but there's some there's some some things in the methods that I don't quite buy uh, about those studies. Um, and, and if we get into fiber specific hypertrophy at some point, I may go into that a little bit more. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical of those studies. Um, but anyway, kind of my take is that under most circumstances. Uh, load dependent fiber type specific hypertrophy isn't a thing, or if it is a thing, it probably doesn't occur to a large enough degree to really worry about. Um, and so the reason I wanted to talk about this study is it, uh, it confirms my biases here. Um, much, much like you wanted to confirm your biases with the condom study, but we're so above all those other fitness gurus that are just trying to confirm all their biases. We're way beyond that. I mean, at least we can admit it, (laughs) you know, you're, you're allowed to root for it if you, if you call it out. Right. Um, so yeah, this one did look at changes in type one and type two fiber cross-sectional area. Both fiber types increased in cross-sectional area in both loading conditions, and the increases were virtually identical. Um, Didn't really seem like high-load training was better for type 2 fiber growth. Didn't seem like low-load training was better for type 1 fiber growth. Um, It is worth mentioning that, in my opinion, there is one really high-quality study that does, at least in my opinion, show that under some contexts, load-dependent fiber-specific hypertrophy can happen. Um, So there was a study by... Oh, man, I should have looked this up before we recorded. I think the the lead author was Bjornsson, um, but it was a study on powerlifters comparing uh, traditional front squats to low-load front squats with blood flow restriction over a fairly short period of time. Uh, And in that study, they did find pretty robust type 1 fiber growth in the group that was doing low load training with blood flow restriction and only in that group, not in the other group uh, that was doing like heavier traditional training. So I'm not, I'm not close to the idea that load dependent fiber type specific hypertrophy is, is something that can occur. Um, But like in, in that study, you know, one possibility is that, Oh, they're power lifters. They're mostly doing heavier stuff maybe their type 1 fibers had kind of been uh, maybe neglected uh, and that they were kind of getting like some catch-up growth from low-load training, whereas 
maybe if you trained with loads not as similar to those of a powerlifter and more just like moderate training loads all the time, uh, more like a bodybuilder or physique athlete would do, then at that point, maybe you're not really lagging in type one fiber growth. Um, and so, you, you, you know, essentially maybe, maybe there are differences on the extremes that if you're training with really heavy loads specific to like what a strength athlete would be doing, maybe you are very slightly neglecting your type one fibers such that over a period of years, you build up a type one hypertrophy deficit, which can then be remedied by a few weeks of low load training. Like, I, I think that's certainly possible, um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's common enough to present it as as something where just for the general training populace, you do low load training, you're going to get a lot of type one fiber growth. Um, and I don't think that it's in most circumstances going to be a difference that's that's practically relevant and meaningful. Um, but yeah, so for the most part, I don't think I don't think you need to worry about doing heavy training to to really work those type two fibers and lighter training to really work those type one fibers. Most if your goal is hypertrophy, unless you have some really weird and wacky ideas about hypertrophy training, I think the training you just do normally on a day-to-day basis is going to cause uh, pretty robust growth in both fiber types to a degree that you don't need to do extra special training to target one type or the other. That makes sense to me. One of these days we should take a a deeper dive into fiber specific training and, and go through some of the details, but that makes sense to me for sure. So I'm holding off because I heard, I heard through the grapevine. I don't know if this is true or not. Um, and if it's not, I'm sure he'll let us know. But I heard that Brad was doing a study um, looking at high load versus low load training, I think, in the soleus versus the triceps. Triceps do tend to be a little type type 2 dominant. Soleus is very, very type 1 dominant. Um, I've heard that a study like that is in the works. Um so, you know, I'm I'm sure if that is the case when it's published, a lot of people will be talking about it. And uh, that would be a good way to couch that discussion. Um, but yeah, in general, I'm open to the idea that it exists, but I, I question how relevant it is under most contexts. Yeah. Now, something we've talked about this episode is confirmation bias and various types of bias, which is a good lead in. We've got a drama update. Drama is the new segment that was created by default because of that one uh, doping documentary, right? Yeah, uh, Lord of the Lifters. Yeah, so we we talked a little bit about a project a while back. It was a series of meta-analyses on the health effects of red meat and processed meat and some guidelines going along with it. And their their guidelines were basically a lot less a lot less forceful than previous guidelines about, hey, don't eat fatty red meat, don't eat processed meat, it's going to kill you within the next week or two. So they were like, ah, eh, some of that, some of the research that's leading into those uh, guidelines is kind of methodologically not super strong. And so we would back off that, not necessarily change the rec- recommendation, but, but back off in terms of the certainty with which it's provided. And so that that series of papers caused a huge stir. And the reason we talked about it was a listener asked us, hey, 
they found some conflict of interest from one of these authors of the guidelines paper, does that change your assessment? Because our, our initial assessment, or at least mine, I don't want to speak for you, Greg, but I was like, yeah, I mean, we still think that like a ton of fatty red meat and processed meat is like clearly not a great move. Like you don't want to build your diet around it, but you know, low to moderate intakes, probably not the end of the world. Um, but anyway, they're like, hey, does this new discovered conflict of interest change your mind? And that story has taken a turn. And we, we've talked about this before, Greg. My natural inclination is to take my hot take, freeze it down to a very cool temperature and present it. And this is one of the instances where I regret it very much because I played it off as like, oh, this this author, this Johnston guy, eh, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but whatever. Yeah, we... Uh we went lukewarm when we should have gone nuclear. We should have gone very nuclear. And so there's been a development here. There is a the JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. They have a blog and, and there was a blog post. The author's name is Rita Rubin. And it kind of goes into what happened in the process of this backlash over the articles that got published. So this is all, I'm just kind of, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not making any claims here. I'm just reporting what has been published in this blog post. Uh, and we're going to link the blog post if you want to read it. But um, apparently the editor... M- in- much like our our god and hero, Bill O'Reilly, we're not journalists. Uh, this, is, this is a program purely for entertainment. <laughs> exactly. So uh, apparently what happened is... Um, the editor-in-chief of the journal that published these papers saying like, eh, processed meat, red meat, not the end of the world. They got a flood of angry emails before the articles even got published. And at one point, they they allegedly received over 2,000 emails in a 30-minute period. And they just like shut down her inbox. And so Lane, the editor-in-chief... Which, all of those emails were the same text, right? I, I think which- they I, I'm pretty sure it said that in the article. I think which, they said it was a bot. Yeah, which which smells of a bot doing things. Yeah. And so the editor-in-chief said like, hey, we've published about like firearms and like in preventing injury from firearms. And the National Rifle Association was way less vitriolic with their response than the, the response we got to this paper about red meat and processed meat. Um, and so th- there's this group. It's called the True Health Initiative. It's a nonprofit founded by David Katz. You know him from one of the totally unbiased voices in Game Changers, who is telling you all about how you know plants are the only way to live. All of our cinematic universes are just converging right now. It's all yeah. It's all coming into one here. We just need some corrupt weightlifting brass, and the circle <laughs> would be complete. Exactly. And so then there's these guys from Harvard, Walter Willett and Frank Hugh, that are on the the Council of Directors for True Health Initiative. Um, Now, what this journal or uh, this blog post indicates is that there were these demands to retract the papers before the papers were even publicly known, which indicated that their embargo policy had been violated. Basically, somebody had gotten access to uh, the press release about the papers Uh, and had basically circulated that information before they were supposed to or allowed to. And so uh, basically, uh, they're they're saying that David Katz was like kind of getting people all worked up about it and and sharing some of this embargoed information before he was allowed to. And apparently the journal dropped him from their list of journalists that they're willing to actually send embargoed materials to as a result. 
And so four days before the articles were published, uh, Katz and 11 members of, of the that THI group uh, sent, sent the editor-in-chief a letter saying, hey, you got to retract these before they even go up. Um, and apparently, according to this blog post, uh, this Katz guy wrote in a, his own kind of article somewhere, he called, he called these articles uh, a great debacle of public health, and, and he compared them to, uh, he, he called it information terrorism that could blow to smithereens the life's work of innumerable careful scientists. I am 100% going to start referring to everything I come across I disagree with as information terrorism. I mean, you kind of have to now. The precedent has been set. That's, that's the that's the most melodramatic bullshit I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? And you're you're the king of melodrama. You you always do it sarcastically, but this one appears to be for real. No, like that's seriously. If you had a particularly precocious four year old who <laughs> like you know is isn't just going to be like, oh, I didn't get the toy I want. I'm going to die. Like that. It's it sounds like the melodrama you'd hear from a four year old, where like you know, mom says. Oh, you can't have dessert before dinner. It's like that's fake news. That's information terrorism. It's culinary terrorism. Yeah, that's no dessert. Jesus Christ. That's that that is infantile. <laughs> so, okay, there's this other group. It's called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Um they went so far. They petitioned the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, a Ooh. federal entity. Uh, to to intervene on these papers and to to what they 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 say to correct false statements, um, and they they actually took it a step beyond that. They asked the district attorney for the city of Philadelphia to intervene uh, to investigate potential reckless endangerment resulting from publishing this work. Well, I mean that's how science is done. Uh, you may think that the ideal remedy to science is, you know, the peer review process. And if you think people are doing shoddy work, find holes in their actual methodology and what they did and correct it, uh, or do better work that supersedes. But, uh, that's actually a complete lie. That's, that's in fact, information terrorism. Uh, science is done in the Philadelphia district attorney's office. (laughs) That is how, that's how you settle scientific disputes. Now, I suppose, God damn, this is, this, the, the, the more this goes on, the better it gets. Yeah. And so, so this, this group, the, the PCRM, they, they describe their mission as saving and improving, improving human and animal lives through plant-based diets and ethical and effective research methods. So like, they they've kind of they've they've shown their cards right um now this whole dust up this whole thing of reviewing johnston's um uh he was a, a the kind of the senior author on the original papers reviewing his conflicts of interest they said they made a big deal of, about him getting money from a group called Texas A&M AgriLife so it's a funding mechanism associated with Texas A&M University that did receive money from the big, big bad beef industry. Turns out the beef industry provides about 1.5% of AgriLife's total funding and about half of AgriLife's funding comes from federal sources. It's just like the USDA, uh, you know, agriculture related entities like they, they have stuff about... Uh, like I said, if you go to their homepage, it's a bunch of like crops and stuff. They're talking about like pesticides and cotton and like materials. And honestly, dog, I'm kind of disappointed in AgriLife for this. 
it's they're associated with Texas A&M. That's a Texas university and only one and a half percent is coming from the beef industry. They got to pump those numbers up. Yeah, that, that is positively untexan of them. Yeah, I'm, this is kind of a big. Uh, I think this is the real scandal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, tech, where is the beef industry? I mean, come on. So um, in any case, th- this blog post, like I said, I'm, I'm just relaying to you what's in this thing, but it goes all through uh, Katz's background. And, um, you know, they kind of said like, well, dude, you've had like several big grants from from groups and you work with companies that are for profit um, and, and they just kind of be like, OK, so you and like people from, you know, I, I talked about Willett and Hugh, they're from Harvard School of Public Health and they're like, you guys all seem to get funding from like, you know, some kind of like walnut group and all kinds of like different like plant based kind of foundations and funding sources. And uh, <laughs> and so I, I think they attribute this quote to Katz. He's like, I don't think you can accuse, uh, you know, so and so of conflict of interest. They have a genuine interest in the health effects of nuts. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with industry funding which would be fine if he didn't previously attack Johnston based on having funding from a group that got one and a half percent of their funding from the beef industry. Um, and so he's like, he's basically making the argument, uh, you know, we, we study this stuff because we love it. He's studying this stuff because he's crooked and paid off by big beef. Do, do, do the next quote that you have on here, because this is the most, this is the most like lawyery bullshit I've ever heard. This is this is on on tier with like the Bill Clinton impeachment trial. Like it depends what is is like. Yeah, this is this is good shit. Yeah. So a- according to the blog post, he told JAMA, I think there is a big difference between conflict of interest versus a confluence of interest. The work you do is what you care about. No one's ever paid me to say anything I don't believe. <laughs> Dude, you could screenshot that, and then if you just like looked looked up in the dictionary the definition of distinction without a difference, you could just include that screenshot, and that's literally what it is. Yeah, and so in this JAMA blog post, they mention all the like, you know, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollar grants that that Katz has previously received to do various nutrition studies on like the effect of cocoa on vascular function and the health effects of eggs. And again, they're, they're funded by companies that produce chocolate or, or, you know, promote egg consumption and stuff like that. And so the, the article, like I said, we're going to link it, go ahead and read through it, make your own decisions. But, um, I think it is really telling, um, based on social media posts, it sounds like, um, Guillenay, how does he pronounce his name? Stefan? I think so. So Stefan Guillenay, he he kind of went out on on social media. I for, I forget which platform, but he basically it was, was on like, Twitter. On Twitter, yeah, he's like, I was really disappointed to read this article. It's the blog post that we're referring to, uh, describing attempts by the the THI to suppress these meta analyses. Um, as a result of this, I've cut my ties with THI. Obviously, I paraphrased and abbreviated there, but basically, he was like. Uh, I'm not on board with this based on what I'm seeing in this blog post. I I don't like how this went down. I'm out. And he mentioned this isn't about whose opinions on red meat are right or wrong. It's about the integrity of the scientific method. I hope THI can find a better path forward. Um, Yanni Friedhoff, uh, he, he also was previously associated with the THI in some capacity. And he posted somewhere, you know, shared Stefan's disappointment, also cut my ties. So, Which honestly, like, that's a big deal to me because, I mean, I I don't follow nutrition research super closely, um, 
But Guillenay and Friedhoff are both people who at least I perceive to be super legit. And also just from following them over the years, like they both seem like great dudes with strong moral compasses. And also the furthest thing one could possibly be from like a pro red meat slash processed meat extremist. Yeah. Yeah. And so this alone was enough to be like, wow, that's really fascinating. But then this happened, which totally blew my mind. So the chancellor of the Texas A&M University system, so Texas A&M and all the branch campuses, the the basically top executive uh, with that entity, had an open letter to the president of Harvard. Again, that's where two of those researchers are, uh, Willa and Hugh. And basically, it's an open letter. Uh, We'll link it in in the, the show notes as well so you can read it. But uh, basically, the chancellor of Texas A&M is calling on Harvard, Harvard's president. He's like, dude, look at the allegations in this JAMA blog post. Like, you need to get this stuff together. You need to investigate, uh, you know, what's going on with your faculty members. Because, you know, the way he said it was, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the chancellor of Texas A&M is under the impression that these two people mischaracterized scientific research and falsely accused Texas A&M scientists of selling out to industry interests. Um, and so, I mean, this is like a red hot on the academic spectrum of uh, vitriol and just general uh, infighting. Like this is like a this is a big deal. I mean, it sounds like they're going to find out that science can not just be adjudicated uh, in the DA's office of Philadelphia but also the DA's office of College Station, Texas. Like that, that sounds like where it's going. I, I don't think it'll go that far. I, I think it's a lot of, uh, I, I think the Texas A&M folks were just like, all right, enough is enough. Like, get it together. I, I don't think this is really going to play out into anything huge. But I mean, it is at least bordering on defamation of character. I mean, potentially, yeah. Potentially. So um, again, uh, we're going to we're going to post the links in the show notes to the JAMA blog post and also that open letter from the chancellor of Texas A&M. I'm just faithfully reporting what's in the blog post. I didn't like go through and fact check every single part of this because I trust that that JAMA is not going <laughs> to go on to some smear campaign with a bunch of fake news. I, I feel that would be a very bad choice for them. Uh, but in any case, that's the state of the uh, the current uh, scandal related to red meat and processed meat. As I said before, I didn't think that potential conflict of interest from Johnston was anything troubling or out of the ordinary. And by the way, I don't fault Katz, Willett, Hugh. I don't fault any of them for taking private industry funding mechanisms for their research. I don't fault any of them for doing that. However, if you do take those types of grants, you can't immediately turn around and say that anyone who takes industry funded grants is therefore a crook. You can't really do that. You know, you, my, my, my rule is I support all researchers taking private industry grants and, and faithfully and transparently doing research with them. You have to be consistent with it. No, for sure. So, so and, that, and it, the thing that got me was just that bullshit quote like there's a difference between a conflict of interest and a confluence of interest it's like what what do you think what do you think these motherfuckers are doing like do you think he took money from the agri-life institute in spite of the fact that he hates all agriculture like yeah what what, what do you think's going on there i Uh, I hate the concept of food 
Therefore, I can't take money from anyone who does anything with food. Well, food and probably textiles, too. I think they have a lot of cotton related stuff as well. So I mean, that's at least understandable. Yeah. But anyway, so that is the state of the scandal. And I still think, uh, I don't know, just don't eat a ton of processed meats, but maybe you can eat a little bit. (laughs) Oh, that's the hot take. All right. So that that sums up that segment. Yes. Okay, so uh, we're about to move on to the to play us out segment. But uh, before that, we need to thank our sponsor, which funded the drama segment of this episode, uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, Thanks. I I love the work they're doing, by the way. I would say this is a clear confluence of interest situation. Um, Love cattlemen, love beef, just love everything about it. Yeah. Okay, so to play us out, uh, let's talk about sourdough bread. Um, So if you've been following me on Instagram, you know I've been getting really into bread baking recently. Um, And I recently made the shift over to sourdough. Um, And so sourdough is, is good. I personally think it's tasty. And for... Some people who have um, like FODMAP sensitivities, uh, sourdough bread is a lot more digestible and causes less stomach problems than uh, bread made with commercial yeast because basically to make sourdough work, it needs a longer fermentation time and that allows time to break down a lot of those compounds that people with FODMAP sensitivities struggle to digest. Um, So it's you know, theoretically, maybe a little bit healthier. I think subjectively, it's much more delicious. Uh, And if you struggle with bread, uh, just consuming it and not having GI issues, sourdough may be good for you, whereas conventionally baked bread wouldn't. Um, So anyway, that's just some background about sourdough. So here's some sourdough tips if you want to get into baking sourdough bread at home. So to start with, if you want to do real sourdough bread, you need a sourdough starter. What I mean by real sourdough bread is you can make uh, a cheating version, a pale simulacrum of sourdough bread um, by basically just adding vinegar or something sour to regular bread dough. Um, Some of the acetic acid from the vinegar will stick around and leave the bread tasting sour. That is apparently how at least some like mass manufactured sourdough bread does it um, just by adding sour things into the dough instead of using a natural sourdough starter. But if you want to make a real sourdough bread, that means you need a sourdough starter. And that's essentially just a mixture of uh, flour and water that picks up yeast and lactic acid bacteria. The yeast come from the flour itself. It's just hanging out on the flour in small amounts. And then uh, it gets to work breaking down the sugars and multiplies and you have a nice little colony of yeast um and the lactic acid bacteria as i understand it comes from the air like from the environment um and doesn't come with the flour so you need to get a you need to get a starter going there's a lot of articles online about how to maintain a starter it's pretty straightforward you just discard about two-thirds to half of it every day and then feed it by adding equal parts in mass wise of flour and water to it, mix it up, let it go another 24 hours, dump half of it out, add flour and water again. And once the starter is stable and healthy, 
You can keep it alive like that virtually forever. But the challenging part with a starter is getting it going in the first place. Uh, and I've actually tried to make sourdough bread several times before, but the thing I always struggled with was getting a healthy and productive starter going. Um, and the issues, so the issues you can run into is either one, uh, not getting enough lactic acid bacteria in the, the starter mix early enough or not getting enough yeast in early enough. Because uh, basically, once you get enough lactic acid bacteria in the mix and once you get enough yeast in the mix, they form a symbiotic relationship um, where you know they break down different parts of the flour, they liberate food for the other ones to consume. It's a nice, big, happy family. And they also both like acidic conditions. Uh, so a pH somewhere between 3.5 to 5. Uh, and once the pH drops to that level, that keeps harmful bacteria from being able to grow. So if pH gets too high, you could get an infection with botulinum toxin and that can kill you and that's not good. So you want a relatively low pH. Um, and so I struggled with this before because essentially I'd, I'd get to work on the feeding for a few days and then... Uh, I think basically there just wasn't enough yeast in the flour I was using or I wasn't getting quick enough culturing of the lactic acid bacteria to kill off the bad stuff. Um, and I just get kind of like a fungal overgrowth that would start in the in the container where I was making my starter, which really wasn't pretty. Uh, so I did some reading and I did some testing and I came up with a solution that at least for me got me a starter that was already like bubbly, healthy, and stable within like two or three days, which previously I'd, I'd been working for like two weeks and couldn't get it stable. Um, so what worked really, really well for me is to start with, instead of just starting with flour and water, which is what most people recommend, um, instead of water for the first few days when you feed your starter, use uh, kefir, um, which you might call kefir. I learned that I was pronouncing that wrong. It is kefir. Um, or a mixture of yogurt and water. The, the kefir or the yogurt and water will contain lactic acid bacteria, assuming you're using unpasteurized, which you should be. Um, so that'll infuse lactic acid bacteria into the mixture. Make sure you have a bunch of those to start with. Um, and yogurt and kefir also have a pretty good pH for sourdough. So they'll have a pH somewhere between about four to four and a half, which is in the range of three and a half to five that you want for, for your sourdough environment. So that takes care of the lactic acid bacteria and it starts taking care of the pH. Uh, and then another thing you can do if, you know, if you're using a flour that just doesn't have enough yeast on it to, to really start colonizing your starter fast enough is you can actually use a tiny bit of commercial yeast. So maybe just like an eighth of a teaspoon or a quarter teaspoon. Um, and that's a neat little hack because th the thing that had kept me from doing that before is like I wanted the natural yeast flavor to be able to pump out the lactic acid and acetic acid in high enough quantities that I would want for a nice sour sourdough bread. And you don't get that from commercial yeast. Commercial yeast will basically just produce CO2 and ethanol. Um, and doesn't produce nearly as much lact or nearly as much lactic acid or acetic acid. Um, but I was doing some reading and it turns out commercial yeast is kind of like the, f the flame that burns bright and burns out fast. Uh, so it's not very, it's not very hearty. Uh, if you're feeding a mixture only once every 24 hours, commercial yeast 
will basically spend itself and die in less than 24 hours at room temperature. And since it's just less hardy than wild type yeast, um, if you have a culture that has both wild type and commercial yeast, over time the wild type yeast will outcompete the commercial yeast. So you can use a little commercial yeast in your uh, initial mixture along with the kefir for the lactic acid bacteria to get that symbiosis going between the yeast and the lactic acid bacteria to create the conditions you want for a stable, healthy starter. And then over time, the natural yeast will outcompete the commercial yeast to take over uh, the culture. Um, and so then you have a nice, stable, happy starter. So if if you've ever tried making sourdough before and you weren't able to get a good starter going, you can try some of those tips. So again, instead of just using water your first couple of days, use kefir or a mixture of yogurt and water uh, as you're feeding your starter. And then also try mixing a tiny little bit of commercial yeast in to start with. Um, those, those two tips at least did the trick for me. And within, like I said, two or three days, I had a stable starter. And within like four or five days, it was a good, good sourdough starter. Um, you know, it, it smelled the way you want it to. It's behaving predictably. It's it's good, good stuff. Um, one final little note uh, is you want to make sure that you're feeding it with uh, unbleached flour instead of bleached flour. Um, and ideally, at least some degree of whole wheat as well. Uh, bleached white flour has lower levels of natural yeast on it, so it just takes longer for everything to get to to get rolling. Um, and the, the whole wheat flour, like the other stuff in the flour, the yeast likes munching on. So either like 50-50 unbleached white flour and whole wheat flour, just all whole wheat flour. It's going to be ideal for, for feeding your starter or rye flour. Uh, apparently the, the natural yeast and lactic acid bacteria like rye the most. So anyway, those are tips for getting your starter going. And then just general tips for the bread itself is... Um, so everything I'm about to say, I'm sure is old hat for people who have a lot of experience baking with sourdough. But for me, like I'm just getting into it. I've turned out about six loaves at this point, and the last four of them have been really good. The first two were kind of sketchy. Um, the thing I ran into with the first couple of loaves is they were good, um, but they just tasted like normal ass bread. Um, and I wanted sourdough because I wanted it to taste sour. Like I like that sour taste. Uh, and the thing I ran into is essentially I was um, I was playing with kid gloves with fermentation times. And when you're normally cooking bread with commercial yeast, you know, you mix everything up, you let it rise for an hour, maybe an hour and a half if the room's kind of cold. You punch it down, you shape the loaf, let it rise for about another hour again, and it's good to go. So you're kind of used to going from mixing to baking in about a three-hour period. Or if you retarded in the fridge overnight... Um, you know, it might take another like two hours to wake up and, and rise when you bring it back to room temp, but it's a fairly fast process with sourdough. The timeline is dramatically longer. Um, so if you just take uh, commercial yeast and mix up dough and let it sit at room temperature for 12 hours, it's going to be completely useless at that point. Um, but something like 10 to 12 hours is a pretty good starting point for making sourdough. Uh, obviously, it can differ if you are using refrigeration to retard the dough and, and maybe let a little bit more flavor develop. But if you want to do the whole thing at room temp, uh, if you go ahead and mix the dough 
and you know maybe do some turns and folds to develop some gluten strength but basically just let it sit at room temp for minimum eight hours but really like 12 is a decent starting point and up to 18 like the best loaf I've made so far was just hanging out at room temp for about 18 and a half hours before uh, I popped it in the oven that was good ass bread um so to to get away with that you want to make sure that in your original recipe the starter is a relatively low percentage of the total flour you're working with so the loaves I make Uh, I go with 600 grams of flour. So my starter, I keep it at like 66% hydration. So I add 100 grams of starter, uh, which is about, or yeah, which is about 60 grams of flour or so. So about 10% of the flour going into my finished loaf is from the starter. Uh, It's going to take longer for that to like fully inoculate and ferment the dough. Um, If you go with a higher percentage of starter, so if say like 20, 25% of the total flour going into your loaf, was from your starter that's going to be able to uh, ferment the dough much much faster and so maybe you'll be able to pop that loaf in the oven in like five or six hours uh, which shortens your baking time but it also doesn't give as much time for flavor to develop Uh, that's one of the things i did with one of the first loaves i think i went with like 22 percent flour from the starter and the loaf turned out well like it had the texture that i wanted um, and everything was was generally nice, but it didn't have that intense sour flavor. So you want to go with a relatively low percentage of flour coming from the starter. Again, maybe like 10% or so. Um, and try to aim for a dough that can hang out, like I said, for like 10, 12 hours plus. Uh, that'll give you enough time for really, really intense sour flavor development. Um, doing some reading about this, it basically seems like early on, uh, lactic acid is the main thing that those yeasts, um, well, both the yeast and the lactic acid bacteria are producing, I guess more the lactic acid bacteria. Uh, but as the fermentation goes longer and longer and longer, those lactic acid bacteria will pump out more acetic acid. Um, and lactic acid will taste like kind of sour and tangy if it's present in high enough quantities, like say in kefir or yogurt. Um, but you're probably going to have a pretty hard time getting enough lactic acid in bread dough for it to have a really, really, uh, intense effect on flavor. So it's really the acetic acid that's going to give it that characteristic sour sourdough flavor. Um, and, and to get that, you really need long fermentation times. Uh, so yeah, don't be scared. Um, (laughs) don't think on the timelines that you would with commercial yeast, uh, if you're used to mixing and then baking three hours later, you're not even in the right ballpark. It's probably going to be at least twice that long. And again, if your room is fairly cool and you're using a relatively low percentage of flour coming from your starter, it could go 12, 18 hours before you bake. Um, so it's a slower process. It's a little bit more, well, it's considerably more time intensive, but you're going to get a lot more flavorful loaf from it. Um I don't feel comfortable necessarily sharing a recipe just because like everything is going to be very strongly dependent on like what type of yeast and what type of bacteria are in your starter. Are you using white or whole grain flour for the loaf? What temperature is your kitchen? Are you retarding the dough in the fridge overnight? Like there's a lot of variables you can play with, but just in general, those would be my recommendations. Like start with a low percentage from a low percentage of total flour from your starter and, uh, and give it time. Basically what I would recommend is like kind of allow a, a, 
a loaf to overproof and work backwards from there. So like if you find that at 24 hours your uh the dough is overproofed, it doesn't rise right, like it falls in the oven, then, you know, work backwards. You find that like okay, 20 hours, maybe it's a little overproofed, but it's generally all right. Uh work back a little bit further, 18 hours, it's not overproofed, it's great. Like then somewhere in the 16 to 18 hour range should be what you aim for. Uh, Just like lifting, a lot of it's a troubleshooting process, especially when you're working with sourdough because, you know, you're you're trying to coax life and flavor out of living organisms, which is going to be somewhat unpredictable. But it's going to be a troubleshooting process. But just in general, uh, the, the process you can find to work with that gives you the longest total fermentation time is what's going to produce the most intense and, in my opinion, the best flavor. Yeah, and I've tried your sourdough bread. It was very, very good. I I don't know which loaf I got, but I assume it's one of the four good ones. You got the second good one. Okay. The fourth is downstairs right now. It's the best. Oh, interesting. You should grab a slice on the way out the door. I should. Um, all right. Well, that does it for this episode. Um, I can say this pretty confidently. We, We basically have three kinds of listeners. So... If you came here for reckless speculation about cell swelling and frog muscle, or if you came here for sourdough bread tips, or if you came here just for nutrition-related beefs between academics, you got something that you were interested in. We got all those bases covered today. So that does it for this week's episode. As always, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.